Hello, as always, I am Brody Robertson, and today we're back with episode 54 of Tech of a Tea. And today's guest is a creator over on Odyssey known as Retro Edge Tech. He also runs a computer repair business, and I don't know how else to do an intro. How about you just introduce yourself? Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Brody. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just a, a guy who is interested in Linux especially. Um, so Linux is my main thing. I've been doing Linux stuff probably since 2003-ish um, and really got into it in 2004 and then onward. Um, so Linux is definitely the thing that I'm most interested in and I like having fun with that. But yeah, I do computer repair and sales. So I fix broken computers, lots of upgrades. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I sell computers as well. And um, I, But on Odyssey, uh, a library, I do um, Linux types of things, uh, some short tutorials, and a lot of it is just publishing my thoughts or something that I'm interested in, but usually retro type related, kind of mm -hmm. like older hardware, um, Linux related, and some newish stuff as well. So it's retro edge, like retro, but also pushing things and sometimes doing things with new things as well. Right. I was going to ask you what the um, where the name came from, but that you already got to it before me. So yeah. Um... That, I do like the name. It is a much better naming scheme than I have. There's a reason why I call all of my channels, like, the only channel that has a name is my podcast channel, because that's already enough names for me to come up with. I'm awful at naming stuff. So it's just, you know what? I'll just use my own name. Why not? That works. Coming up with business names is hard, because then you're stuck with them for a mm. long time. So, like, my orange computer, you know, I came up with that more than 10 years ago. And it's a color and a fruit, so it's easy to remember. It's, mm -hmm. So it's easy to brand for color-wise as well. But it's I'm stuck with it as well. It's it's you know I I can't like on a whim change it. I've got to stick with that name for my local area, of course. Yep. So it takes it takes some time. Yeah. Well, luckily I in Australia you don't necessarily if you run a um a sole trader business you don't necessarily have to actually have a legal business name but still if you're going to market yourself you still need right. to have some name you're going to be operating under like i've got some um some relatives that own a um a gardening business and sure that like you could go and rename it very easily but then what's going to happen with the existing clientele you have if they don't if not all of them realize you've changed your name then you're going to lose some some of your uh, your clients exactly so, I know a lot of your earlier videos were also um, videos that are accompanying some of your blog posts as well. Yes, and I, I hope to get back to that as well. And I was experimenting with BSPWM Tiling Window Manager uh, mm -hmm. about the same time you. Um, so I have some stories with that. If if it's okay to uh, yeah, go sure. on a little bit of the trail. Tangents um, are entirely fine on this podcast. Makes my job easier. I have uh, been using Linux pretty much regularly primary operating system since 2004 when Ubuntu first came out. Um, and I used Ubuntu for over a decade. And I'm pretty Linux hardcore. Like I'm known in my area as knowing Linux pretty well. I do tons of stuff on Linux. I had never really even known what a tiling window manager was mm -hmm. until about a year ago. Um, and so I think that that niche of the kind of uh, things 
that I hadn't been exposed to at all, but you were exploring and a few other people on, on library were exploring. I was like, wow, this is cool. This is a lot of fun. Um, and I'm not always in a tiling window manager now, but kind of mm. interesting that about a year ago or a little bit more than a year ago, I had no idea what that was. So I was kind of exploring it, even though I had a good Linux background, I just never played around with tiling window managers before. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird thing to get into because I started using Linux about two or so years ago. So I kind of started with the tiling window managers, but judging what you've said, you've been around way longer than that. Like I, I, it's always cool when I see people who have been using Linux for a very long time and they come to my channel and like, hey, I've been like, I've, there was one dude I saw who was like, I've been a, um, uh, a network engineer for 30 years. I'd, I've never explored desktop Linux though. And that's always a, a cool thing to see when someone comes to my channel for that. Yeah, no, it's, I had used the defaults mm -hmm. uh, for Linux stuff. And so essentially, just the default Ubuntu environments yeah, yeah. is very proficient at that. It works and it worked great for a long time. Um, and then uh, when they switched to GNOME 3, things didn't work quite as well. And that's when I started exploring. Yeah. Yeah, I I've, have never used Ubuntu before, uh, before GNOME. Like I, I've used it in a VM a couple of times for some of my uni classes, but I don't know. Like, I've never really been someone who's had that much of an attachment to what it was before. So what was it about the the previous way it worked that actually made it compelling? Well, when I started, it was on the GNOME 2. And so it looked very much like um, Mate looks now, Ubuntu Mate. And it was just simple. It was easy to use. It was easy to find your way around. And I think most people were used to that. Mm. And uh, then when they switched to Unity, which I don't know, that was a long time ago too. Uh, 2012 or 2010 or something like that. That was a kind of a big shakeup and they were gonna to try to do their own desktop environments. And there were some really cool things about that, but I never became proficient in the things mm -hmm. that it was good at. It's like they had this heads up display with all these keyboard shortcuts and all this kind of stuff. And I never really used that, but I liked the Unity environment and it was easy to use. I liked how they had the dock on the left because um, it kind of got out of your way on a wider screen. Um, so, um, it was just very easy to use. And so when they switched away from Unity and there were some performance issues on the GNOME 3, I was like, um, I think mean, I've been using Ubuntu for a really long time. Let's explore and look at other things. And uh, so that's when I started exploring and did that for probably about two years with different things. Really liked Ubuntu Mate. Um, but then when I started watching your channel, I found you, I found you on library. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, then I was like, what are these tiling window things? Because <laughs> I think I would have joined <laughs> library around the time I was actually starting to look at BSPWM. Because before that, yeah. I was doing... I was using i3 before that, but I didn't really properly explore that window manager. It was more like, hey, I have i3 installed. That's basically it. But BSPWM was when I'd started doing a lot of the, like, breaking down how the window manager sort of works. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. So it was an interesting introduction. You know, my trying to get it to work for the first time is essentially loaded it in and there's just a cursor on a black screen and I have no mm -hmm. idea what to do. So it was that learning curve and it was hard and it pushed me a little bit. And it's like one of those things that now I know what's going on. It's like, oh, that was easy. Well, no, it wasn't when I first started. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of an interesting thing from a, you know, I 
hardcore Linux user for years and years and years, over a decade. But the that interface, the tiling window manager, just confused me like crazy for a short time. And then when I once I figured it out, I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, and I switched back and forth. I mean, I don't, I'm not always in a tiling window manager, but I, that that was kind of this weird learning curve that I experienced about a year ago. Yeah, BSP is a bit of a um, a deep end to jump into because things like i3, at least the default configuration, gives you sort of like a rough idea of what's happening. You get a bar that comes with it. You get some little prompts when you first open it that tell you like how to open up a terminal. Um, awesome WM also... Actually, I think Awesome is probably Same. a really yeah. good spot to start from because everything just sort of works with Awesome. It's configured kind of weirdly, but BSPWM, you get nothing. Like... Unless you download an existing config, it's just like, okay, here's a blank screen. You don't know if your system's just not working. Like, the first time I opened it, I didn't realize that uh, anything was functioning. Because unlike i3, it doesn't have a uh, a built-in hockey daemon. So you open it, and you literally cannot do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun, but going through some of the things, and I certainly watched some of your videos to get me started on that. I never did really some of the advanced things like um, finding out the window IDs and moving things around based on that. Because yeah, those, window, those videos were not very good. I need to go back and do <laughs> some of them again because they were really bad. Well, now you've learned a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm experimenting with... Uh, Nimdo, which is a uh, window manager written in the Nim programming language, which I have a, a small interest in, but I'm probably it's probably will be a passing phase, mm -hmm. and I might I'll probably move on to other things. Um, but it, it's kind of fun to you know just explore different things, and and mm -hmm. uh, I'm having fun with Nimdo for now. But I might switch to something like Awesome or just just something that just works. Yeah, while yeah. I work on more experimental things. So that way, you know, I can kind of have a config with awesome or something else. Um, so I might switch back to something that you're using. And I did get, I think awesome was the first tiling window manager that I ever successfully got up in working. And yeah. I'm like, yes, I like this. Okay, now let's go work on SPWM. The thing about uh, working with awesome though is everything's written in Lua. So then you have another language you have to learn. Right. Um, speaking of programming languages, um, my kind of retro interest has been peaked recently. Mm. Um, also in 2004, about the time that I seriously started using Ubuntu, I read Paul Graham's Hackers and Painters book, um, which is kind of a programming book that was published in that year, 2004, Hackers and Painters. Mm -hmm. And in there, he kind of extolled the virtues of the Lisp programming language. And I had never heard of it before. And at that time, I was like really interested, but my I, I really didn't get programming concepts. I mean, that's not mm -hmm. something that I had, I had studied much before. I'd always been a wannabe programmer, but I, I really didn't get that stuff. And so years later now, now I do get programming stuff. I kind of like a couple of years ago, about three years ago, I pushed myself to really understand a lot of the concepts and work with some JavaScript and Python. And my kids actually got further along with it faster than I did. But then I got it too. I'm like, okay, now I know what I'm doing. I understand basic programmatic concepts, for loops, assignments, you know, mm -hmm. if that, while, that sort of thing. But before then, it really, it didn't click for me at all. Um, so now I'm going back and I remember, oh, I really wanted to do Lisp stuff back in 2004 when I re read that book by Paul Graham. And so now I bought some Lisp books that were maybe published in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And 
again, my 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 ten year old is making a lot faster progress with it than me, and he's like, "This book is really awesome," which is fun because the book was published when I was nine years old, and he's about the same age now. He's ten now, um, so that's fun, and I like those retro things. And so I'll probably start doing more things with Lisp, mm-hmm. with the understanding that you know computer repair and sales and all that keeps me busy enough that I don't really have a whole lot of time to do it. Mm-hmm. But my excuse is, hey, I'm getting the kids started on it. Uh, I have three sons and a daughter, and they'll make more progress with it than me, and then they can teach me. That's what I think will happen, maybe. <laughs> the four kids is already uh, enough work to deal with. I don't know how you managed to do that and a business and learning to do stuff on the side as well. That's that's a lot of work. Yeah, and, and we just moved into a new place, which is mm. great, but has tons of work with it as well. At least so. you've got uh, at least you've got one that's old enough to look after the others. So, yes. that does help yeah, out. Yeah, they're all pretty. They're all pretty grown-ish now. That, okay. Know. Yeah, the youngest one is nine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that that puts you in a good position. I'm sure if it was a couple of years earlier, you wouldn't have had uh, that much time yeah. to do stuff. No, I didn't even start looking at programming again until maybe 2016, and my oldest child was born in 20, 20, 2006, so a decade later, you know. So, yeah. I've got a, a couple of uh, Lisp evangelists inside of my Discord server, so I'm sure they're going to love this section. Uh, well, Lisp is, Lisp is one of those things where, you know, it was invented in, in the 60s, and then Common Lisp, the one that most people use, was launched in 1981, so it's about as old as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where it's a, a language that won't die. <laughs> you know, people are, you know, there's always that uh, Lisp enthusiast or evangelist that mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of stuff that's written in it um, that continues to hold people's interest. And so from a retro perspective and kind of just because of how different it is, as a, mm-hmm. it seems like every thought or part of it is encapsulated in parentheses. That's so different and confusing for most people from a programming language perspective. For, but for me, there's also an appeal to that because you can mm-hmm. like I can figure out where this expression is because I can deduce by elimination of parentheses. That's mm-hmm. where this thing is that's going on. I've never yeah. looked into the language myself, but I probably should at some point because I've I've looked at like the the modern languages people are using now, things like TypeScript, JavaScript, Python, things like that. But I never gone back and looked at something that has like a lot of history. Obviously, besides C, C that doesn't yeah. count because C is still very much in use today, and it's a very uh, different language than it was back when it first came out. But I've never looked back at like things such as Lisp or Fortran or COBOL or anything that's been around for a really long time, which just has a very, very tiny, uh, tiny, I guess, group of people who still absolutely adore the language. Which for Fortran and COBOL, there's probably not a, that group is probably a lot smaller. (laughs) Well, that group is also probably close to retirement. Yes, or yeah, or have gone into retirement already. But of course, there's a few systems that still run that stuff where people get hired. That's the problem, uh, because... There's yeah. no one learning those languages, and everyone who does know the languages is either retired or getting close to retirement. And yeah, yeah it, there's going to be some problems coming come the next few years. Yeah. So, and I'm not sure how much stuff is written in Lisp, and I have zero desire to get a programming job, mm-hmm. but I'm very interested in programming. 
Yeah. So, um, so for me, figuring out how I can justify spending a significant amount of time on it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like something I want to do for fun and that I want to learn and get better at, but I don't have a real good use case for actually how to profit from it. Um, so for now, it's just going to be fun stuff and me sharing what I learn um, on the retro tech stuff. That'll be some programming things, uh, some Linux stuff configuration. Um, it's more like, hey, I'm doing this thing for fun and I like it and I'm going to share it. I don't necessarily have a uh, great plan necessarily how to make money with it, though I have a few ideas. I have mm -hmm. some ideas, but it's, it's nothing that... Uh, my my main computer repair and sales is 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 what pays the bills. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I wouldn't want to <laughs> completely uh, uproot what you already have uh, that already works just just because you want to try out something completely new. Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that uh, you know my aspirations of becoming a Lisp programmer would be great to bank on uh, mm. for paying the bills. Yeah. No. Unless we have a sudden shift in the uh, the software industry, I, I think that's a safe bet to take. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'll do some fun things with it and uh, I'll publish what I learn along the way. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully it'll be kind of a long track. Um, the other thing that's interesting about choosing Lisp is that it is a retro language. So it fits mm -hmm. in with all the other stuff that I'm doing with retro things, mm -hmm. but it's still, there's still a lot of people using it and it's current yeah. and things kind of cutting edge, like uh, uh, the GNU geeks, GNU geeks, right? Mm -hmm. That, that uh, Linux distribution, they use their package manager. They use a, a Lisp variant, uh, I think a, a scheme variant to do their package management configuration. And I haven't played with that yet, but that's an example of something that's pretty cutting edge that's yeah. recently released um, that uh, uses Lisp. So. so if you haven't really got much into programming before like the past like couple of years or so back when you first started using linux i'm guessing you didn't really do much in the way of uh scripting your system very basic things um i, I actually taught a linux uh system administration course for a local tech college for okay. two years and so um but you know since it was an overview class and all of the rest of the course material was windows and networking yeah. stuff and they just had to take this one Linux class. Um, we didn't get super in depth with scripting. Yeah. It was just some basic stuff. Here's how you do some things. And I had Here's some how pipes work, things like that. Yeah. 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 And um, so nothing super in depth. I, I wrote some short scripts for my own use, but I found that I didn't really keep on using them. I mm -hmm. just, most of my Linux experience was essentially just using the default desktop environments and using default software tools, uh, mm -hmm. you know, certainly like Firefox and Thunderbird to do most of my work. And that's essentially how I used Linux for probably close to a decade. Oh, well, I guess I did a lot of like local server stuff. Right, right. Uh, so I would host my own wiki and keep my documentation for my employees and that. Um, and so, you know, I would configure and set up the wiki with web services and that sort of thing. Um, uh, my kind of point of sale system was uh, written in a Ruby on Rails application by my brother as a school project, and we just kept on using it. Um, the interesting thing about that is it doesn't work um, well on anything newer than Ubuntu 20.04. 
four. So, you know, a version of Linux that's close to a decade old now. Um, so Are you doing about keep... as good as all of the, uh, the point of sales, uh, point of sale software running on windows xp then so it's not right that bad. yeah exactly so i just i mean but all, all it is is essentially it's just a web server that is local to me i don't have exposed to the internet so there's mm. not really a security risk um and i just keep on using it but one of my goals is like hey if i get good enough at programming mm. i can program a replacement for that and then that would be a use case it's not like i need it for my business but it would be for my business so it'd kind of be a good programming excuse yeah yeah that's fair Oh, I did have something I was gonna say, and then we kind of went like way off track. Uh, yeah. Where where were we at? Um, let's see. Oh, so, um, what has your your distro experience been like then? Because I know you said you used you've used a lot of Ubuntu, but besides Ubuntu, yep. what have you used over your history, and what are you actually settled on at this point, or are you still like hopping around at this point? I'm still hopping around to some degree, but I like stable things. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, right now, what I'm talking to you on is um, MX Linux, which is based on Debian. So it uses mm -hmm. the apps package manager, which is very familiar to me, of course, from the Ubuntu days. Um, but it uses a different init system, so it doesn't use systemd, uh, though it has like these kind of like software shims for software that expects systemd so mm -hmm. that those can still work. So I think that's kind of a creative solution. Um, so right now I'm on MX Linux and I have that on my current workstation and uh, my laptop. But um, for the last year, I've had another uh, workstation that um, is behind me that I've had Manjaro on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's the primary one that I kind of played with and did a lot of my early videos and stuff on was Manjaro. Uh, interestingly, I shut that down uh, for a couple months during the process of the move um, and then brought it back up and was using it again. But then when I did a huge update after it being off for that long, everything works except in, including USB keyboard and mouse. But anything else that I plug in with USB, like USB webcams or external USB drives or anything like that, none of that shows up whatsoever. So something in the Manjaro Arch uh, you know, update process of it being off for a while and me not doing updates and then doing mm -hmm. a bunch of updates that, that broke something weird. And of course, I'm not going to bother fixing it. I'll just migrate to something else and yeah, get my data right. off and wipe it. So, but so um, with distro stuff, um, I have interests, a big interest in um, Alpine Linux, mm -hmm. but there's some usability problems as far as using that as like a daily driver for a workstation, you know, sound isn't, you know, out of the box configured. Um, it doesn't use the same compiler. Um, it, like GCC isn't installed by default. It uses uh, Musil instead. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, always uses OpenRC for an init system instead of systemd. So I have, I have a real big interest in Alpine Linux. Mm -hmm. But I probably wouldn't use that as my daily workstation distro. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I eventually I'll probably play with like the BSD stuff, like OpenBSD. But there's no pressing need for that. I'll probably do that a bit later. Yeah, um, but I, I'm interested I'm in the Open same BSD. boat with that. It's just like, yeah. oh, at some point maybe I'll I'll try BSD. I've got like a bunch of like with the Lisp evangelist, a bunch of BSD evangelists saying, hey, BSD is great. BSD is great. It's like, it probably is, but yeah. my system works right now and I don't have any, like, absolute... I, there's nothing wrong with what I have and anything I want to address at this point where, like, I desperately need to try out something new to see if I can fix it. 
so for me, it's sort of like very much on the back burner. Plus, if I'm going to switch to something like BSD, it's going to be for the sake of content. And that's a pretty big project to take on to actually yeah. do like reasonable videos on. That'd be a commitment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that, that stability is one of the reasons why I like Debian based distros, especially since I had, you know, 10 plus years experience of using Ubuntu every day. Mm -hmm. um, and my dissatisfaction with Ubuntu was the, I, I, what I loved about Ubuntu is that the defaults just worked great. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they switched to GNOME 3, um, the defaults didn't work great for like the first six months to a year as they were doing that transition process. And now that they've figured it out, I've become more of a, a minimalist fan or retro fan and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of like using stuff that isn't as resource intensive as the default mm -hmm. GNOME shell. Um, yeah. So, and um, I'm not a huge fan of snaps. Um, you know, I'm not super against them either, but I just, I, I kind of looked into the technology and I'm not a super fan on that. So I've kind of settled on really stable things mm -hmm. like MX Linux or Debian or Linux Mint um, that are Debian based. Um, and then for software that I need more recent versions of, I like app image because it's just like, it's just one file. I can keep them all in one place. I can sync them. They're not complicated. And so I find that kind of balance to work well of using something pretty stable. And then mm -hmm. if I want something more recent or that's not packaged for it, um, if it's got an app image for it, that's great. Yep. I don't use that many app images. I think I have like maybe two or three. I can't remember how many, but um, I, I do like them as well. They, they're a very convenient way to, especially with older applications, things that have dependencies that are going to be removed from the repositories, they yeah. really do help with that. And I don't know, I, I think they, they they hold a place, whereas with Snaps and Flatpaks, while I have used both of them before, my problem with Snaps is Snaps really like to make loopback devices and they just clutter up your system. That's my yeah. honestly my biggest problem with them. And Flatpaks, they're, they're fine, I guess. I don't have anything really against them. Uh, but both of them are sort of trying to address the, the same problem with your package manager, whereas App Images... Because, uh, like, snaps still have the exact same dependency issue. If you have a snap that has dependencies on other snaps, if those snaps get removed, then, well, you're stuck. Or if they get updated, then you're basically stuck. Whereas app images come at it from a completely different approach, and you can still sandbox them if you want to sandbox them, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And the sandboxing doesn't work properly on flat packs anyway. Someone's going to yell at me if I don't say that. Um, but I, I think that. Averages do actually serve a pretty good, uh, a, a, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Do actually have a pretty good use case. At least that's the way yeah. I look at them. There's probably a much yeah, better way to phrase that, but. <laughs> yeah, older software is exactly right. So I mentioned the um, point of sale that I'm using on Ubuntu 12.04. It's a Ruby on Rails app. Well, essentially, if I, if I upgrade the Ubuntu system, it gets newer versions of Ruby on Rails and the dependencies and breaks the previous system so that my point of sale doesn't work on it anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's very dependent on those older dependencies. And when the new ones change, that breaks that system. Well, I haven't made an app image for my point of sale. I just run it on the older system and it keeps mm -hmm. on working fine. But for regular applications, if you can take those older dependencies and like, hey, this app does what I want it to, 
And I can just kind of freeze it in time, have it in an app image, and then you can run it on newer systems without worrying about library conflicts. Um, I see, yeah, that's, that's a great use case. Um, and from the retro point of view, you know, that also makes a lot of good sense because you can keep on using software on different systems, on older hardware, or even older versions of the operating system. And as long as it supports the basic app image stuff, um, then it works. For example, Alpine Linux doesn't, uh, oh. last time I checked, work with app images. So that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't necessarily use it as a daily driver, Alpine, because uh, um, last time I worked with it about a year ago, uh, when you try to run app images, it just doesn't work at all. Speaking of, um, you mentioned Linux Mint just before. I don't know if yeah. you followed too much about Linux news. Did you see the, uh, there was an article a couple of days ago about how Linux Mint, like there's a lot of Linux Mint users who just haven't updated their system. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's very much my use case. So when I would um, install Linux for my customers, my local customers, most of them were that type of person where essentially the reason they switched to Linux is because Windows was giving them a bunch of problems and pop-ups and junk and all of that kind of stuff. And they'd come to me, you know, a couple of times a year to do virus removal. And I'd be mm -hmm. like, well, hey, all you're doing is browsing the web. Um, maybe Linux would be a good solution for you. And a lot of times it did end up being a great solution for them. Mm -hmm. But then you know, they never do the updates because their purpose was essentially, you know, you start the computer, start the web browser, do the things that they want to, like check their email in the web browser or browse their news sites or read, look up their articles and recipes. And that's it. They didn't do anything else. Mm -hmm. So I would sometimes get computers back several years later. Um, and eventually, you know, they'd usually get a message that would say, oh, you're, you know, this version of Ubuntu is out of date. Mm -hmm. um, do something. And then, of course, you have to go up several releases. And I would end up doing that for them. Um, so, yeah, that's a definitely, I can totally see that is a lot of my customers were that way. And now I'm loading Linux Mint on for those types of customers, too. So I think that exact same thing will happen. Um, I don't, uh, yeah. I was, was going to say, um, I think this is sort of, uh, it, it's sort of something that's going to happen regardless of what they're running. Uh, like some people are saying this is like a problem with Mint or they should force the updates. Or it's the problem with this and problem with that. It, it's sort of just the fact that there's a lot of people who use a computer who don't really care about what they're actually running on their computer. They just use the computer as a magical black box. It does what they want it to do. They don't want to worry about updates and regardless of what they ran, they could run literally anything and they would, the exact same problem would happen. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had tons of customers on Windows XP. I yeah. mean, you know, years and years and years, um, even at several years after it was uh, stopped supported. Um, Windows 7 wasn't as much. I mean, I, I just talked with somebody yesterday who was still using Windows 7, um, but he, for a very particular purpose, he said, it doesn't go online. It mm. does this thing in my business and it keeps on working. And up until recently, all of the software that he wanted to use on it worked just fine. And so now he's calling me about getting another one uh, with Windows 10 um, at, because he's like, ah, oh, this one application that I want the current version of doesn't work on Windows 7 anymore mm -hmm. and it will on Windows 10. But if it wasn't for that, um, he might not even have called me. You know, he might just keep on using that. So, uh, it, well, I think he wanted another laptop too, but... Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's stuff like that where if it works, especially in a business case, you just want to leave it and let mm -hmm. it work. And I think there's a lot of people like that, not necessarily 
people who aren't tech savvy, but sometimes they're very tech savvy and they say, for technical reasons, I just want to leave this alone, air gap it, not have it on the internet, just keep on letting it do its thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I fully understand that. Like if, if it's a business case, if it's if it's functioning, that that makes perfect sense why you would never touch it. Like um at my work right now, I got a picture of the uh, security system there, and it, it made me stop for a second because I noticed what the uh the the window um, borders look like, and they were the Windows ninety eight borders. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was like, all, all right then. That's actually kind of impressive. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean I haven't used Windows ninety eight stuff for, for a long time. So yeah, it, it and that's one of the things with retro things. Most people who are into retro like used those retro things a long time ago. They're like, oh, the old version of Mac OS, like Mac OS eight or nine or something before it switched to OS X is so awesome. And I love those retro things. I want to play retro games. Like that's not me. And mm. uh, and I have zero desire to run like Windows XP for retro stuff. Mm. Uh, I get a few customer requests like. Sometimes people want to run old games and I'll load up a virtual box with Windows XP on or something like that for them. Or sometimes they want a retro computer with an older stuff. So I, I get a few of those requests, but not very many. And I'm not a retro gamer. Mm -hmm. yeah, a little bit. I like Tetris. That's my favorite retro game. Other than that, I, d I don't care about retro gaming. And of mm. course, that's the, that's the topic that most retro people are into is retro gaming. And yeah. I, I have zero desire to do that in my own free time anyway. Yeah, that's fair. Like, I'd rather be playing around with cool Linux stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. Um, I get why people want to, and I think that's it's a yeah. good thing that people do like uh, retro gaming because that is what is sort of keeping that like that industry alive. That's and that's cool. how you, that's how you have things like how there are... Um, I think it's like Windows 95. You can get an add-in card for a lot of like the support on Windows 95, an adding card for a lot of boards where you can just use like an SD card for your storage, which yeah. things like that would never have happened if there wasn't an interest in retro gaming. Yeah, there's a huge, um, on YouTube, there's a, there's a channel, Phil's Computer Lab or something like that. And he mm -hmm. does a whole bunch of stuff with old. And that was kind of inspiring to me early on when I started doing videos as well. I was like, wow, there is a huge audience for this and people are interested in it. And one of the things he said in one of his videos, even though he has gaming in almost every single one of his videos, he said like, well, I'm not really a gamer, but for the views, <laughs> well, essentially he, he puts gaming stuff up because he knows that there's a there's a huge interest. There are lots yeah. of people that, and that's part of the nostalgia, I think, is that it's like, yeah, I played this when I was a kid or I have fond memories when, you know, my my family and I used to do this together. I'd have friends over and we'd do this together. So I think it's very much that nostalgia that people have that drive that interest for retro gaming and then therefore retro PCs and retro stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, in some cases, um, the retro option actually is better. It's not. It's not a entire. It's not always true. But when it comes to things like the um, some of the higher end CRTs, if you're looking into retro gaming. There is definitely a use case, or not just retro game, just gaming in general. There is a definite use case for why you may prefer a CRT over a um, over any modern display, regardless of what panel technology it's using, just because of the improved refresh rates they have that physically isn't possible with the way that we're making display tech now. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've had zero requests for CRTs, uh, locally anyway. And then, of course, the shipping then. If, if I did start selling stuff online, mm -hmm. selling a CRT would be kind of difficult to box and ship that up and send it. I certainly wouldn't send it to Australia. Sorry, Brody. <laughs> Still good. I'm sure there's uh, there's some dumpster I can find it in. So. Yeah, yeah. And well, most of the CRTs that I get are not the good ones. You know, they're yeah, like the... Yeah. They like general cheap office ones. ones, yeah. Yeah, the, the not not very good ones, the cheap ones. Um, but I still did get a few in recycling. I try not to get them in recycling. I do like free electronics recycling too. Okay. Um, and because uh, that's a cool way to get retro stuff, and it also helps out my clients because they're like, "What do I do with my old computer?" I'm like, "Well, I can take it," and then I work with other recyclers, and I get to reuse the fun stuff that I'd like to, yeah. um, and then also then pass it through the recycling stream. But I try not to get CRT monitors because I have to pay for their disposal. Right. Um, and I've always been like, well, maybe I can sell one. Like maybe there's this retro person, you know, gaming person that wants one. I, I still haven't found it. But yeah, if you're gonna <laughs> I haven't find, tried too hard. <laughs> there's a very, very small group of CRT monitors that anyone's looking for. And right. if you come across one of them, they are worth a lot of money. Like the Sony it, Trinitrons are one, uh, like in only certain models though, too. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I'll be surprised if I actually find one that's worth anything. And then I'll be even more surprised if I'm able to sell it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be someone out there who wants it, but finding that customer is the hard part if you're not doing stuff online. Mm. So what actually, what do you actually do with your computer business? Because you said you do also um, computer recycling as well. But besides that, what, what actually goes into your business? The, the main part of it is um, upgrades and selling refurbished computers. Okay. Uh, so let's see here. Is that a ThinkPad back like, there? Yeah, I've got, I've got something here. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of machine that I normally sell. Yeah, there mm. you go. So this is, you know, that's a ThinkPad T450. Um, so I'm going to get this out to a customer. And uh, before that customer, they that they had a T520 laptop mm -hmm. that they used for years and loved. So I'll be transferring the data from that onto this. So that's a big part of my business is reselling uh, refurbished ThinkPads, other computers too. I sell Dell a little bit as well, like the Dell Latitudes and... Uh, Dell Optiplex workstations. But the vast majority, kind of what I've known for locally, is the refurbished ThinkPads, mm -hmm. which is fun because now there's starting to be this retro movement. So laptops that I've sold for years are now being like, oh, the new hot thing for yep. things like Libre Boots or Core Boots. Um, and so here, I'll get another laptop. There are people who absolutely adore ThinkPads who are yeah. who make Linux videos out there. Um, so here's an X230. I just got I, I just got a new supplier, so I got a box today mm -hmm. of new laptops. This is an X230, and my favorite ThinkPad was an X220, so the model just before this. Um, and so now these laptops that I've been selling and working on for years mm -hmm. are now becoming popular again. And yep. so I, I'm having some fun with that, and I think mm -hmm. I can explore that both from a fun standpoint and a business standpoint. Um, and so in that shipment, I got a T61, uh, ThinkPad T61. And of course I sold a lot of these years ago, like 
I'll say probably eight to 10 years ago, I sold a lot of ThinkPad T61 laptops. Um, and now people are loading LibreBoot up on them, which I haven't done yet. I'm going to explore that very soon. Um, so LibreBoot and CoreBoot and stuff like that, I want to explore and have fun with. So I got a, I actually purposely bought a T61 where a couple of years ago, I would have thought, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that that's kind of something I'm exploring. But for my main business, a lot of it's hard drive replacement. Yeah. So hard drives, spinning hard drives are just terribly slow, especially with Windows 10. Windows 10 just grinds to a halt and barely performs at all if it's on a regular hard drive. Well, a lot of these laptops, even brand new laptops that are sold, um, come with a 5400 RPM hard drive. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. And so out of the box, they're terribly slow. And so mm -hmm. very frequent, at least a couple of times a week, um, I'm you know, taking out the slow hard drive, putting an SSD in, either doing a fresh install or a migration from the hard drive to the SSD. So that's a big part, doubling the memory, you know, the yeah. laptop came with, uh, you know, four gigs of memory, you know, doubling it to eight gigs. That's very common types of things that, that I'm doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I Even like really new stuff, I, I tend to look at a slightly like higher price range where you do tend to get SSDs, but yeah, a lot of new stuff still does come with mechanical hard drives, which is really yeah. weird with how cheap SSDs have got now. It's uh, it's like one of those things where this isn't a good word, but it, it's it's a crime, right? It's a crime that they're selling at that. You know, and not necessarily in the legal sense, but just in the sense that it seems wrong that manufacturers are putting this slow of a drive. Like from, from my standpoint, I mean, I sell computers, right? I would never want my customers to experience a slowness like is on those computers from a computer that they've purchased from me. That'd be terrible for my brand yeah, yeah. if I sell computers that slow. Um, and I sell old computers. So <laughs> why would I want to have, you know, sell something with a regular hard drive in that is just terribly slow on Windows 10? And, you know, it's slow on Linux too, but at least it's bearable in Linux. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a... Uh, yeah, so from that perspective, oh, the, the kind of the big story that I remember, and I tell this a lot, is that just a few years ago, Apple, in one of their new iMacs, mm -hmm. put a 5400 RPM hard drive in. And this is an iMac that sells for like $1,100, $1,200, so over $1,000 just recently. And the, the special sauce on the top of that is oh, that... 2019 model. Yeah, it's an iMac that you can't upgrade easily because if you try to take the screen off to get to the hard drive you'll probably break the screen mm -hmm. so they essentially put a slow hard drive that you can't get it out and upgrade it in and they sold it to you for well over a thousand dollars um so that's the story that i tell about manufacturers doing crazy stuff like why would you do that to your brand why would you make give somebody such a frustrating experience and they, they do. I mean, you can go to Walmart today and buy an HP Pavilion laptop or whatever the brand name is for the cheap ones. Now I forget. Yeah, uh, um, probably Pavilion still. Yeah. Yeah, HP fifteen something or whatever with a mm -hmm. hard drive in it. And then whatever the the ridiculously string a long string of numbers after it is. Right. Yeah. And so, but yeah, no manufacturers still do that, and I, mm -hmm. I don't know why. It'll keep me in business with SSD upgrades for a long time. I think part of the reason, before we get to that, uh, I looked up the uh, the 2019 iMac, and the first video that shows up is uh, from Lewis Rossman, is the new iMac trash. And that's, yes. 
very yes. fair. Uh, I, I love <laughs> Lewis's content. It's great. Yeah. Um, but I was, what was I going to say? Um, wait, I lost it. <laughs> um, oh, right, right. I think the part of the reason why they still do it is because when you put a one terabyte hard drive in a computer, that sounds right. like it's so much better than putting a 256 gig SSD because it's a bigger yeah. number. That's definitely it. Um, and meanwhile, almost all of my customers are using less than 100 gigs of storage. Yep. And most of those are under 50 gigs of storage. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Windows takes up 30 gigs. And then if they're using 50 gigs, well, it's still only 80 some gigs. So in practical terms, a 128 gigabyte solid state drive is going to be so much better for the vast majority of people than a one terabyte hard drive. Even though the one terabyte is, oh, that's a thousand gigabytes. It's so much larger than the small SSD. Well, the the large drive is so much slower and worse mm. out every other way except storage than the SSD. Yeah, but I think you're right. Absolutely. It's that marketing thing of, hey, look, you get a terabyte with this. But I, I remember when... Um... SSDs were first coming onto the market. Like I, I'm, I'm still quite young, but I can still remember that happening in the computing industry. I remember it's only how. Ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember how expensive they were when they first came yeah. out. It's just like, oh, you want right. to, you want to pay a thousand dollars for like 128 gigs? I'm like, right? No, I don't want to do that. And I was looking at um, because I've got a Windows drive on my computer right now because I needed Windows to do some stuff at uni. Um. I bought a 256 gig SSD for like $30. Right. Yeah. No, the price difference is amazing. So right now it makes zero sense for anybody to use uh, a hard drive as their main drive. Now as extra storage, that's completely fine. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's still a good use case for hard drives for like if extra you have, storage. Yeah. If you want to have like a, all your family photos and videos on a hard drive, that makes sense. Don't, yep, don't, 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 please don't store them on one hard drive, though. <laughs> please don't do right, that. Yeah. Backup, backup drive. But, you know, what I'll often do in desktop workstations is the main drive, uh, the operating system drive will be on an SSD, and yeah, then I'll have yeah. an additional drive in there and set it up with automatic backup. Mm -hmm. um, so that way, they'll probably never use it. You know, most of my customers won't touch it. But then if it mm -hmm. comes back to me later and something's messed up with the operating system, well, then, you know, it's been doing its daily backup or whatever onto the other drive. And chances are that hard drive will be fine. Yeah, yeah. And then I can re recover the data. Yeah, the, the way I'm running my system right now is I've got a NVMe drive, which is my OS drive. Um, I think that's like a 256 gig or something like that. And then I've got my just general storage drive. That's a two gig mechanical drive, which it's fine. Like, I, I don't care. It takes a while to access like some pictures and stuff. Yeah, it would probably speed up editing, but it. I don't do 4K video editing, so I don't really need the extra speed. Like a mechanical hard drive's fast enough. Honestly, the bottleneck is my CPU rather than the drive itself. Okay, for the editing part, yeah. If okay. I was doing 4K, yeah, there, there would probably be a problem there, but Linux video no. editing is not great anyway, so there's just bottlenecks everywhere. Yeah, I've been watching your adventures with that. Uh, for me, I pretty much don't edit. Like the biggest mm. edit I did is I figured out how to use FFmpeg command line to like chop the end of my one of my videos because I like messed up the ending. Mm. I was like, well, the rest of the video is good. 
And so instead of doing an editor, I actually figured out how to use the command line to trim off what I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and that, that was fun. I like stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, 1080p is is a great format. And, and for library, I guess they're, or Odyssey, they're still recommending that we do 720p. But for doing text stuff where you want to show code or commands on the screen, having that crisper mm. is pretty nice. So I, I think 1080p is pretty much the perfect resolution for that. I still try to make my uh, content. I know a lot of my viewers watch on mobile. So I try to make my content actually watchable for them. So I end up zooming in a lot of my on my terminal. Uh, so I probably right. am running like a 48 point font or something like that during my videos. Like when I regularly run my system, that would be horrible to use. But when you're looking at like a phone screen is still fairly small, even with how big phones are now, it's still what at most seven, eight inches, maybe nine inches. If you have like a, a big like tablet phone, which is ridiculous. Right. Phone shouldn't be that big. Um, I think mine's five and a half. Uh, but I, I still try to make my content actually viewable on that. So even if it is 720p, if the font's at 48 point, you can probably still read it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, do, you, do you publish? You publish in 1080p, right? I publish on YouTube and use the, uh, the syncing okay. and publish in okay. 1080p. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, for me that it ends up being such a good size that I probably will stick with 1080p for I mean even if like everybody starts publishing in these higher resolutions in the future I guess maybe that's my retro stand as I'll stand with 1080p for years to come cuz yeah I don't see a reason for the kind of uh, things that I want to do to use a higher resolution. I think 1080p is probably going to actually it, I reckon 1080p is probably going to stick around. Like, oh yeah. Things like seven anything below that, it kind of gets hard to read any of the text, but I think monitors aren't gonna get any bigger because they're already at the point now where they take up way too much desk space. You can get like 34 inch monitors. At that point, sure, 4K does make sense, but I don't think like 24 inch and 27 inch monitors are gonna go away anytime soon. Um and 4K on something like that really isn't that worth it. I've used it before. It looks basically the same. Right. Yeah, and I, and I don't see the use case for anything over 1080p on laptops. Because, Definitely you know, if you... Or phones. Phone, it's dumb. It's right. really dumb on phones. I've seen 4K phones. and like, that is battery drain for no reason. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, even a lot of the laptops have lower resolutions, but 1080p is nice. I, yeah. I like 1080p. Or what is the... 16 by 900, that's what my ThinkPad T420S mm -hmm. is. And I use the ThinkPad T420S as my daily driver laptop. Um, and that's, I guess that's retro now. That's close to eight, nine years old or oh, something wow. like that. But I like it. It works great. Um, and that's 16 by 9. It's like the 16 by 900 resolution. Mm -hmm. And that's nice, but it's kind of this weird thing where, you know, like the 720p videos are smaller than that resolution. And then mm -hmm. the 1080p videos are bigger than the resolution. Um, but I still like the 16 by 900 as well. Like, I, th I think it's pretty comfortable the only for laptop. Is, yeah, yeah. Definitely on a, uh, on a monitor. That would be a yeah, right. bit iffy. Um, yeah. The only problem with 1600 by 900 is everything is going to be scaled. And it's not going yeah. to be a exact scale. Native. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, 
so that's yeah that's the only problem so besides besides that i mean and i could look at doing upgrades and that sort of thing to see if i can get a 1080p screen in I my know you can there's yes. like upgrades or something yeah I probably can it's not a very high priority <laughs> but oh speaking hmm. of we we were thinking of we were looking at like kind of retro things yes. um and core boots and that sort of thing um probably won't show up very well but this is a gigabytes motherboard mm -hmm. um it's the only one on the compatibility list for libre boots and so most people, when they think of Libre Boots and Core Boot, they're doing everything with laptops. But I really enjoy working with desktops. And sure, I've been a ThinkPad guy, and that's what people know me locally for. But I like playing around with desktops. And so I bought this board. Um, I haven't messed around with doing any Libre Boot stuff on it. But it is the only desktop board that's on the Libre Boot compatibility list. And I've got it. And I'm happy I've got it. Now I just got to find time to play with it. Mm -hmm. So... I have not looked at all into LibreBoot. Some people have mentioned it before, but what exactly is LibreBoot for people who have no idea? Myself kind it, of included. Yeah, so if you're sort of techie in most of your audiences, the best way to describe it is that it's a replacement for the manufacturer BIOS. Mm -hmm. So instead of having the regular BIOS, it replaces it with LibreBoots is the free and open source one. So that's the GNU one that says, like is freeze and freedom. There's no binary blobs in the Libre boots and that sort of thing. But that's not possible on all models. So then Core Boots and several other projects have sprung up that have some binary blobs, but are mostly open source. Mm -hmm. And so there's some advantages from a speed point of view. I think they boot faster, which really, of course, that doesn't matter too much. You know, you press mm -hmm. the power button if it takes a little bit longer. From a practical standpoint, that doesn't matter. But a lot of people like that. And mm. I think there's some configurability things that you can do, some things that you might not have been able to do with the regular BIOS. Mm -hmm. But there's also some things that you might not be able to do because you know the, the, that custom BIOS, that essentially BIOS replacement, has to have all of the hardware features recognized and coded in. Right. So if you're trying to use it on a model that you know sometimes it's like, oh, this particular thing doesn't work on the laptop because we don't have that included in LibreBoot yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so because it's a BIOS replacement, it's got instructions, basic instructions for some of the hardware. So mm -hmm. maybe your ethernet won't work or your sound won't work or that sort of thing. I think for most of the models they do now that they mm -hmm. support, but it's a very limited list. Like I said, I've, there's only one desktop motherboard and that's a uh, LGA 775 board, so like the Core 2 Duo processors, that old. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, uh, which is is still a viable platform for a lot of people's use. Um, I just sold a computer with a Core 2 Duo not that long ago to somebody who just wanted to use it for a particular task, and they were fine with that. But, you know, but the problem with the newer stuff for people who are concerned with security, you know, with the i5 processors, they had the Intel management engine and, you know, they've got stuff in there that you can't turn off and stuff like that. So I actually predict there'll be, again, a resurgence of interest in things like the Core 2 Duo processors, because at least then people can say, well, I know what's in there for the mm -hmm. most part. And I know it doesn't have the Intel management engine spying on me. And that sort of thing. And I'm not, I, I don't know a ton about privacy stuff, but I'm like, I'm not a security researcher. I just have an interest in mm -hmm. um, these retro things that end up having this crossover with free software stuff and Libre Boots. 
And so, yeah, if, if any of your viewers have a good resource for getting started with Libre Boots, um, um, feel free to post it in the comments because that is probably of interest to a lot of people. But the documentation, yes, there is documentation, but for somebody who's just getting into it and is somebody who's, I'm pretty techy. I know my stuff. I, I've, you mm. know, I've been working on computers a long time. It's still intimidating and I still don't mm. know where to start. Right. So if somebody has a great resource of like, hey, here's how I actually did this. I know there's resources out there, but feel free to share them if you know a mm. good one. Yeah, definitely do that. If um, Or if you, if you remember, actually, YouTube comments are about it. Their Odyssey comments, you'll probably be fine because YouTube likes to remove links for no reason. Uh, if you do want right. to post it on YouTube, um, you're probably better off doing on like Mastodon or something. And I can, uh, I'll, I'll send it through, I guess. But um, yeah, that'd be you, great. You mentioned the uh, the Core Two Duo. If I remember correctly, I think my first computer was running a Core Two Duo. Uh, I think it was a Core Two Duo. Uh, it was some like generic Dell box thing. Um, yeah. I think it was running Vista. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Um, so I may have had a computer before that. That's the only one I remember. I'm I vaguely recall something earlier with XP, but I don't remember that. I don't remember if that was my computer or if that was like a family friend's. But I have used earlier things. It's just the the earliest I remember using a lot of was definitely Vista. Yeah, I I remember the Windows three point one days, but I wasn't very good at computers back then. Mm -hmm. I, my parents got us a computer in nineteen ninety three, and I liked computers. I explored it. But I, I, they found the receipt for that, and they paid well over $2,000 oh, wow. for like a 486 in 93. And so in, 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 in $1993, that's a whole lot of money, you know? Uh, so I, I'm glad that they did and gave me that exposure to computers. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think I'd have any desire to use you know, a 486 on a regular basis anymore. Mm -hmm. But Core 2 Duos are fun. Um, so, cause you can do most things that you'd want to do on them. And my favorite, my favorite model for the core two duos is a Dell Optiplex 780. It came in four different form factors. And I did an early video on blog post on it, um, on retro edge tech. Um, but it's the Optiplex 780. And the neat thing about that is the, the form factors, the three largest form factors have four memory slots. So they can be upgraded to 16 gigs of RAM. It's DDR3 memory. And then the Core 2 Duos, you can put Core 2 Quads in them as well, which is kind of a weird name, Core 2 Quad. But yeah, mm. anyway, uh, <laughs> Core Quad. Um, but so they can actually be pretty capable machines and you can end up doing a lot with them. So the Dell Optiplex 780 is one of my favorite, you know, quote, retro computers. I mean, I sold a ton of those things mm -hmm. not too long ago in my business as regular computers. They weren't retro back then. And, and I can still, you know, sometimes people will contact me and they're like, do you have anything that's not very expensive? And I'm like, yes, I do. And this is actually a great computer too. So uh, it, it still works. So there's some crossover between retro and still practical to use on a daily mm -hmm. basis. And so the Core 2 Duo, the recent ones with DDR3 memory, like the last ones in the lineup, yeah, yeah still end up being really good computers. Yeah, I was actually considering get, like, getting one of the newer Core 2 Duos, the, like the 
the re the what were they the when did they come out? I don't remember. Um, when Intel decided to like redo the Core 2 Duo lineup, um, just because they were actually they were really cheap and they at the time because my main use case was going to be gaming. Most games don't use more than a dual yeah. core, so right. Yeah, so like the the if you even got, now like, most games don't use more than a dual core. Yeah, the Intel Core 2 Duo like E eighty six hundred processor mm-hmm. I think is off to like three point two gigahertz or three point three gigahertz or something like that. And it's just got two cores, but if you were doing certain kind of retro gaming, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it still is awesome. Um, and those processors I think sell for less than ten dollars right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, in my favorite Core 2 Duo processor, it's is a E8400, uh, which is at three gigahertz dual core. And I think those processors also, you know, less than $10, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's kind of one of those things where you can get this system, Core 2 Duo system that, you know, is barely costs any money or you might get it free from a relative or something like that. Um, and for less than a $10 upgrade, you can put a pretty decent processor in there and throw mm-hmm. some more RAM in it, put an SSD in it, load your favorite version of Linux and mm-hmm. have a whole lot of fun. I think now is actually a really good time to get like for getting kids into computing. Cause back when you were growing up, like yeah, $2,000 for a computer in the nineties is that's not exactly a, um, approachable amount of money for a lot of people. But even though like consumer computers now are very locked down, Things like the Raspberry Pi exists now, which is a, a a really cheap system you can use to get a kid interested in like programming, get them interested in actually how electronics works, things like that. And it's just a... Or if you want to, you could actually go and, as you said, buy a really cheap older system that at the time would have cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think... I think more people should actually explore outside of the uh, the general consumer electronic space because, yeah, you're not really going to... Sure, you can do programming on a modern computer, but you're not... Like, try opening up a modern laptop and see what you can actually do with it. You can maybe replace a hard drive if you're lucky. One of right. my hard drives in my laptop is soldered in. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. No, no fun. Okay. Luckily, it had yeah. a second. Uh, it had a second slot. Luckily. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think the Core Two Duo platform. Um, uh, I wrote some articles and did some videos about this kind of the Raspberry Pi versus you know a Dell Optiplex or Core Two mm-hmm. Duo. It dep- depends on what you're doing, of course, because the Raspberry Pi is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of my sons is is doing a project where he's got this camera project and he's got the Raspberry Pi and he like uh, used rubber bands to put inside of a tea box and then he rubber banded a, a battery pack to it which is just USB because the Raspberry Pi can be powered up that and then he rubber banded a webcam onto it mm-hmm. um, and so he's got this little box that he can carry around set up in different spots and then he's doing some bash cell scripting to figure out what you know like doing short video clips and that sort of thing oh, and wow, that's cool. them to his other computer. So yeah, absolutely. You can experiment and have fun with things like the Raspberry Pi and they're cheap and that sort of thing. For the most part, you still have to buy them. And that's mm-hmm. what's interesting about say the Core 2 Duo era of computers. Of course, there's the AMDs, AM2 and that sort of thing in that, that era as well. Um, but oftentimes there'll be a computer sitting in somebody's basement or garage mm-hmm. that's been unplugged for a couple of years. 
And you can take that and start doing really interesting things with it, with Linux and programming, and even external things as well, because you can start doing some USB um, or pinout things with the serial port or parallel port. A little bit more complex, but very doable mm -hmm. and very similar to the pinouts that are available on the Raspberry Pi. Mm, that's actually a fair point. I didn't think about that, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure that yeah, you probably could find something like that. Maybe it's like a, a grandmother who bought a computer for when her grandkids come around or anything like that. Like, There's a lot of people, or maybe they just bought a new computer then didn't know how to get rid of yeah. their old one because like, some people will just throw them in the trash, but there are some people who just don't really know what they're supposed to do with it. And I, I'm sure there are people who have, whether it be in their like storage container or their garage somewhere, just whatever. Maybe it's a bit older than a core to do. Maybe it's, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe even something like running a 486, maybe it goes that far back, but there'll be some sort of old computer you can probably get your hands on. But that's a, that, yeah, that's actually a really good point. And there's fun things that you can do with them. And that's kind of the interesting thing from a computer point of view is like, what do you do with a computer? Well, mm -hmm. for us, a lot of it is making things. Well, that's, mm -hmm. you know, quote, contents, you know, we publish things or, or we communicate. Um, it, and I think for the vast majority of people, they use computers as a communication device. Mm -hmm. So for email and messaging and that sort of thing, when you think about that as that's the primary use of a computer, almost any computer from the last 10 years will be do just fine. But then when you want to experiment with other things that a computer can be used for, say computation, well, any processor from the last 20 years will do just fine on most basic computation things. Most of us, when we're experimenting or learning, or even commercial professional use cases of doing computation or controlling things or figuring out mathematics for something, there's zero reason to buy a current processor to need to do that. Of course, we can use a new processor, mm -hmm. but we don't need a new processor to do that. And so that's the interesting case with the older computers as well, is that when you start like, hey, controlling external machines, like for CNC, computer numerical control, mm. uh, or... Uh, doing switches to turn things on and off, sensors, um, external USB devices for you know communicating with the external physical world. You don't need a new computer to do any of that. Mm -hmm. And so that way it's kind of like older, quote, retro hardware um, can have a new lease on life. And so that's definitely an interest of mine. Mm. Yeah, because, yeah, like if you, especially if you're doing something like that, like, I, I guess with when it comes to computation, there are use cases for having newer hardware. Like if, say, you're yeah. working on like some big project, sure, compilation times being reduced, that is nice, especially when it's a really big project. Like if you're, say, working on the Linux kernel or a web browser, it makes sense why you'd want to have the most up-to-date hardware because waiting a day to compile Linux just to find out there was a bug with it isn't something you really want to do. But... Right. If, yeah, if you're just learning and most of the time if you're just learning, it's going to be something fairly small that'll work. Maybe there'll be a fraction of a second difference, but really it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. So I guess I guess I would encourage people, you know, if you've got a spare computer around and you've just said, oh, that's old, mm -hmm. maybe reconsider and say, well, really, how old is it? And could it be useful if I did just did one upgrade, maybe the reason it was frustrating to use 
is because it had a slow hard drive mm. or because it had Windows 8 on it or <laughs> Windows Vista, one of those off years of the Windows releases that everybody hated. Maybe that was the reason that it was terrible. With a few simple upgrades, um, it would actually be very useful again and a whole lot of fun because you don't necessarily have to worry about the latest thing. You can use whatever Linux distro you, you want to use and start having fun and experimenting with hardware integrations. What happens when I you know, plug this in? Can I get sensor data just using a regular PC? Well, the answer is yes, yes, you can. It just requires these extra steps of figuring things out. But you have to do the same thing with a Raspberry Pi too, but you might already have a computer that's sitting there that's not being used where you'd have to go buy a Raspberry Pi. I'd never actually run eight on my system. I ran seven, I ran 8.1, and then I ran 10. I didn't even, like, when, when 7 came out, or when, uh, sorry, when 8 came out, I was like, I'm just going to, I'll just wait. It's not going to end of life. Was... It won't end of life until the next one comes out after that. It's fine. That was a great decision. Mm. Yeah, what, what is the joke that uh, every other Windows release is mm. a good one? So it's like uh, um, Win Windows 95 just didn't quite have the support, but 98 was great. Mm -hmm. um, Windows ME was terrible, uh, but Windows XP was great. Uh, Windows Vista, people hated Vista, but Windows 7 was the best thing ever, and people wanted to keep on using it forever. Windows 8 did that whole tiles thing with the start menu that nobody could figure out. It mm -hmm. was terrible. Well, then Windows 10 was the best thing ever, you know? And so, like, this every other one is what ends up being good for the Windows releases, which interesting now is that essentially there are going to be no more Windows mm. releases. It's just Windows 10. And so yeah, they, every... they're basically doing Mac OS X. Which yeah. Is the they stopped every... the same number. And then every version or every release of Windows 10 that they do is a little bit more like Linux. Mm. So now they're kind of cheating, right? With the Windows uh, or the subsystem of Linux on Windows, the WSL stuff, like all the stuff that people like, oh, Linux is really good for this. When Microsoft is, oh, we can have that too. We'll just like put it in as this little layer inside Windows 10. Um, and so I see that as like kind of this interesting thing where maybe 10 years from now, we'll still have Windows 10, but the vast majority will have been rewritten to be more like Linux. Windows 10 Snow Leopard. <laughs> so, yeah, so, and I still do upgrades. I mean, I've got a laptop on behind me that you know, mm. I'm going to be upgrading from Windows 7 to Windows 10. And I, I was joking, the owner of that is a tech person as well um, and in, in the uh, IT industry. And uh, that interest in Linux is a common thing there. And so seeing Windows adopt more and more Linuxy things is fun to see. It doesn't want me make me want to use Windows as my daily job no, or anything. No, neither. Right, but it's still interesting to see, like, oh, the cool stuff that we've been geeking about out about for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, now Windows is legitimizing that and mm -hmm. including it in what they're doing. There are a lot of people who are talking about how Windows embracing Linux is kind of bad for the Linux desktop, but I think that people are sort of very are looking at a very short-sighted way. I don't think Linux necessarily needs to be its own separate thing because if you have extra Windows developers who are actually using Linux now. Ultimately, they're still developing for Linux. If they're making new Linux applications, making new drivers, making things like that, all of this is still... Actually, drivers probably a bit of a different one because then you 
probably right. interacting with Windows as well. But if they're making, say, like new terminals, making new graphical application, making new, I don't know, make, making new, even new, entire new window managers, it's still something that is being made for Linux. And if it's being made for Linux, you can still use it yourself. The only reason I mentioned um, Drive's being weird one, because there actually is DirectX support on WSL, but it requires the Windows kernel. I'm not sure why it's even there. Like, what's being written on Linux for with DirectX support? I, I have no idea. I, I, I agree with you that uh, Windows embracing and bringing in uh, Linux is just going to get wider exposure for Linux, both mm -hmm. from the people who use Linux that might benefit from some applications that are written by those developers, um, but also those developers are then familiar with Linux concepts and things and may end up using it themselves too. Um, so I, I see that as a good thing. Uh, of course, I, I still think of the embrace, extend, extinguish yeah. as one of those things that will also likely happen to some degree. Um, uh, okay, I, I don't think Microsoft embracing uh, Linux is a good thing, but Windows users embracing right. Linux, I think there's some benefits from that. Yeah. Um, so in, in even with that process, I, I think, yeah, more people using Linux, exploring how to use their computers to do things instead of mm -hmm. just, oh, this is what was provided with it. I mm -hmm. don't know anything except the default applications or what somebody sells me. Um, that, that open source um, opportunity, I think is great. So mm -hmm. I, I agree. Yeah, I know that... Um... WSL either has or is getting Wayland support. I can't remember if it's already got it or not. WSL Wayland. Uh, I think it's still a work in progress, but previously you could technically get graphical applications working in WSL through like a an X11 server, but it wasn't great. Um, it was sort of a hack, but with Wayland... That opens up a massive, massive new opportunity for Windows users who are actually working with WSL. Because before, sure, you could use terminal applications, but what about using all of the cool GUI stuff that's available on Linux that just doesn't work on Windows? Or if there is a Windows version, isn't actually designed to be a good Windows application. The, I think my, my favorite example of things like that is not a GUI application, but... Um, something like Docker. Docker was first designed with yeah. um, with Linux in mind. There is a Windows version. The Windows version is way behind the Linux version, and I don't know of anyone who actually uses it on Windows. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Docker is the reason why we have the subsystem Linux on Windows, the WSL, mm. because uh, um, essentially people were saying, we need Docker, and corporations were saying, you still need to use Windows. And they're like, we need Docker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, I think that was the primary motivation uh, for that. Um, and as a technology stack, I get frustrated with Docker. I actually don't like it that much, but I can totally see why people do and mm -hmm. why they, quote, need it in, in corporate mm -hmm. um, or enterprise stuff. Um, but I, yeah, that's, that's my belief is that Docker is what fueled all of the Linux stuff on windows that could definitely definitely be the case eh? hmm i can see that um <laughs> are you, were you gonna say something no go ahead ah uh let's see what else do we have on here um 
I don't know even what tops we've hit, to be honest. Uh, I think we hit a bit of random stuff. Um, oh, did you hear... I, I know you said you were going to start using um, Gab a bit more on... on uh, I think you said on Mastodon. Yeah. Uh, did you see the Gab, the Gab hack? I, I did not follow much. How long ago was that? Was that just recent or a couple of weeks uh, ago? Yeah, there's some updates that happened just yesterday, actually. Um... The, the the CEO of Gab blamed the, the hack on uh, on demon hackers, which is amusing. Okay. Um, but this is The Verge, so I don't expect a good article here. Um, I'm not too surprised that it happened, to be honest, because like with Parler, it seems like they didn't exactly have stuff well set up. But they were ahead of Parler on a lot of things. Essentially, mm. you know, they did have their own infrastructure, and that they did base it on Mastodon. Of course, they've changed quite a few things and, and done a lot of their own development after that. But at least they based it on their own infrastructure and they based it on Mastodon. And Mastodon is a Ruby on Rails application, if I'm not mistaken. So right there, I believe, you know, there might be some security issues that if they weren't super on top of it, I'm sure there were injection hacks and stuff well, that, that could have gone on. Problem that I, I'm not sure entirely if this is what happened, but what I've heard is that, or judging by, and judgment of what I've read, is that there is a SQL injection vulnerability uh, because they yeah. had handwritten SQL queries rather than okay. you. Yeah, I I don't know what they were thinking with that. Um, it was only, with judging by what I've seen, it seems like it was just a problem waiting to happen. And the fact that it wasn't worse is uh, sort of lucky. Yeah, I was I was kind of excited for Gab for a little bit, um, and uh, it, it had some performance issues when everybody was switching to it. And, oh, and, I remember and, when, I, when it first came out; it was unusable for a while. Yeah, and and uh, and so now the performance issues seem to have um, been been fixed. Um, but I, I've I joined. Um, uh, DistroTube's Mastodon server, and I've actually really enjoyed that. And so I, I post a few things on Gab, um, and there's some people there that have then followed me to um, DT's Mastodon instance, and so that's been kind of cool. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just post a few things on Gab, and I plan to continue. I, I plan to like post links to my videos and things like that on there, and maybe get a little interaction. I followed a bunch of Linux people, but. Uh, I don't expect it to to work out great necessarily as uh, an alternative, a Twitter alternative. Mm. Though I have quit using Twitter, I, I yeah, I, I, it's kind of been a waste of my time. And but that's a story too. I was kind of like I was the social media expert in our area for quite a while, um, especially with Twitter, and that was about mm. ten years ago. And I did talks on it and i spoke quite a bit about it and using twitter to for your business and stuff like that yeah it was eight to ten years ago that i did that um so it's kind of interesting that i've quit using it um but i i see mastodon or the fediverse as mm. the, the practical replacement for that for for techie people and regular people too it, it does make sense as kind of like this interoperable they can talk you can subscribe to people even if they're not on your same your network that that fixes a lot of the problems with something like twitter or facebook of course it doesn't fix all of them and there's mm -hmm. still things that work better on a closed walled garden 
Um, but I, I, I like the Fediverse. I've had a good time using it with DT's Mastodon server. I tried a few others before then, and it just didn't seem that nice or work that well. But maybe now I'm hanging out with people on there that it actually makes sense to, and it mm. works, and it's fun. Before then, it was like maybe just posting into the void. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, now now I like it. Um, so I'm using Mastodon, DT's um, uh, server as, as my primary thing. I'll post there quite a bit, and it's cool. I've been able to hang out with people and find people who have similar interests mm -hmm. um, there, and, and I like that. But I haven't really found that to that much extent on Gab. I was just having a look at the... Um a theory for what happened with the, the Gab hacks. So someone's looking through the source code and they found uh, some interesting interesting development choices. So you're right about it using Rails. Um, yeah. Basically what happened is they uh, they didn't sanitize user input. and they were, So basically they broke out of the SQL statement and because they were using a function called find by SQL method, if you can break out of the SQL statement, you can basically... Uh, inject your own text into that function, which allows you to pretty much call whatever SQL function you want. Um, yeah. And it's a matter of discovery to just, you know, figure out what queries to get the information you want. Yeah. And the, apparently the Rails documentation doesn't really mention this, uh, this pitfall with the, the function. So yeah. Um, so just, just me, you know, I, I'm using a Ruby on Rails in my own production, in my own shop. And mm. I feel like I can blame that on Rails to some degree. You know, we can blame it on Ruby on Rails. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, if there was any other company that was as high profile, that probably would have happened to them too. Yeah. Is, is my guess. Uh, apparently, Facebook also does some stuff in Rails. And there was like a dev there that mentioned the... Uh the same problem um i'm sure facebook has enough money to realize that's uh that's something you should probably address hopefully hopefully they have more security engineers with it with their payroll but mm -hmm. hope yeah if they've got all that money i'm sure they i'm sure they can afford devs to do something um yeah i'm actually a really big fan of mastodon as well i personally use uh linux rocks.online um mm -hmm. one of the things i like about this server is that there's I don't know. I haven't looked at DTs, but on this one, basically nothing is blocked. I can't think of a single server that has been blocked. Even things like Gab, Kiwi Farms, e things like that. Even all of that is completely open. Basically, the uh, the only rule on the server is be an adult. If you like, just understand that if you do something really dumb, yeah, you're probably removed. But if you just act like a reasonable person you can basically be fine here if you want to hang out with people on anywhere like that that's fine we don't really have any reason to stop you doing that and i think that's that's one of the things that a lot of mastodon servers sort of uh sort of miss out on because a lot of them want to be their own sort of walled gardens like no you're not allowed to talk to these people you must only talk to the people that i like and things like that yeah yeah, DC server, I think, does block um, a few things. And so I might be missing out on some interaction, but I can follow and message you just fine, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's a really neat feature of the mm. Fediverse. But I, I mean, I haven't explored the technicalities of it that much, and I'd like to. I, that's definitely an interest of mine. 
-hmm. and I can see it making sense to explore more as you know part of what I do with retro computers. But it's retro edge. You want to do current fun things with them as well. And the Fediverse kind of matches that because you know you there's a lot of different options for clients. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different you know like the what is it the the video peer tube with the videos mm -hmm. that you can do. Um, the, the, I don't know all the other types of servers, but there's quite a few different things that you can do with the Fediverse instead of just a Twitter clone. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that's cool. I think it works well. It works well with my interests. So I, I plan on exploring a lot more. Uh, but so far, I've just done the simple signed up for DT's instance and posting yeah, yeah. away there and following people. And that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I know there's like a Instagram-like thing. There's a imga like thing there's a like a a bitly sort of thing as well i don't understand hmm. the, the bitly one doesn't really make much sense to me why it's there but hey it's cool that something like that can be done yeah so there's a lot to explore with that and because it's essentially this open protocol that you can subscribe to yeah i think that's pr pretty powerful and it works like the web was kind of supposed to work mm -hmm. right? you can go to somebody's website or go to somebody's thing or you can subscribe to somebody's feed and you actually get it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, instead of some other company deciding what should be shown in your timeline or not. Um, yeah. So it's very appealing, uh, but I certainly don't know the, the technicalities of it or completely understand it yet. I think that's one of the things we do miss out on with a lot of the modern web where it's just like a lot of older websites did have things like RSS feeds, but stuff like that has slowly just been taken away, or if it's still there, it's going to be hidden behind some l massive link tree. Like, most news websites still have RSS feeds. It's just that it's not on their home page. It's, like, right. hidden under 10 different other links you have to get to. It's because they want you to go through their way of showing you, because if they, if they just gave you the RSS feed, then they wouldn't be able to serve you things like ads and they wouldn't be able to get you to click on their other articles. You'd only see the articles you want to see. And I don't know. I, I do have a, a bit of a soft spot for the way, a bit of a soft spot for that, like feed based and connect to whatever you want to connect sort of way of using the web. Yeah, I agree. And I, well, I think there's going to be a resurgence of that. I mean, there's certainly this kind of cultural interest there, you know, the kind of subgroup of uh, Linux and uh, geeky kind of stuff that we're into. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's actually pretty large. I mean, there's, there's a lot I'm of people. Really who surprised. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I thought, you know, Hey, I'm interested in Linux. Hardly anybody else is interested in that. And then you look at, you know, the number of subscribers or the, the searches or the downloads for some of this stuff. And like, you know, there's a whole lot of other people interested in this too. Mm -hmm. Like DT has what? 103,000 subs on YouTube, 104,000 on YouTube now. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole lot of people that for in going over tiling window managers and mm -hmm. command line stuff and programs that, you know, you wouldn't think of necessarily a whole lot of people being interested in. 100,000 subscribers is that's a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's that's on that tiny niche. I don't know what it would be if you had a really big general Linux channel. I know there's a couple of them and some of them I think hidden like the 3 or 400,000 range. I'm sure there's way more people out there who are using it who just don't really care to watch content. Oh yeah. I don't know Definitely. how many people are really using Linux. 
Yeah, and they really can't figure that out, um, which is kind of interesting. It's just mm. curious. How many people are using this? Like, uh, I think I watched a podcast with uh, one of the guys from Ubuntu, and they were they're saying, well, we think there's about this many Ubuntu users, but we really don't know for sure. And in my experience, that's the case as well. I mean, you know, I install Ubuntu for somebody or, you know, Linux, but Ubuntu or Ubuntu-based stuff for the most part. Um, and, you know, they just use it and they weren't part of the community. They weren't watching Linux videos or how to do this or that. They they were just using it as a computer. Mm. So I think, I think there's a very large install base um, that it's, it's hard to figure out and it's hard to know, but it's kind of cool as well. Mm, yeah, it is, it, it's good to know because I don't, I don't, I, I don't think at, at least any time in the near future, Linux is going to be like the main operating system people use, but it is cool that there are definitely other people out there and there's a lot of other people out there who, at least to some extent, share a similar interest, even if it's just they use their computer and it just happens to have Linux on it. It's still cool. That there are people out there who are at least willing to try that out. Yes, absolutely. Um, oh, I, I wanted mm. to mention also that um, you introduced me to Luke Smith's videos. Ah. Um, I had never really, I think maybe I had watched Luke Smith's like on accident just because of, you know, some thing that I was searching up and I had watched a video and, it's it's him, and I realized that a little bit ago because when I went back and looked at a video about sync thing, which is a, a syncing uh, program, um, I was like, oh, I've watched this video before. It's uh, a Luke yeah. Smith video. <laughs> but anyway, I had never heard of Luke Smith before. You had uh, kind of mentioned him on your channel, um, and but then since then, I watched a lot of his stuff and a lot of the things that he talks about. I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and um, especially the kind of like move out to the country, move to the woods type of a thing, because mm -hmm. that's exactly what I've done. Uh, the, oh, yeah. You can't see it, you know, but essentially I have my workshop out in the country now. I have a, a beautiful sunset out to the west. Um, and so I've kind of moved to the woods. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to do that anyway, but yeah. I think it's kind of funny that that coincided with a lot of the uh, things that he was talking about. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the same boat about wanting to to leave the suburbs. I'm not like deep in the city or anything like that. That would be a horrible experience. I don't know why anyone would want to do that. Um, I'm close enough where things like convenient, but I would still like to get out to a rural area because I do have a lot of family out there as well. Like uh, my parents live out there, all my aunts and uncles live out there, and it's whenever whenever I go out there, it's just it's just nice and quiet. There's not cars driving everywhere. You can like just go lay down somewhere and just chill if you want to. It's it's lovely. And, yeah, it's quiet. Yeah, and Agreed. people just seem to be generally more friendly. Like I was there with my stepdad the other day, and this dude just came up to us and started like we were standing in front of like the frozen fish section and just started talking to us about fish. Like I don't care, but have a nice day. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, there's all types everywhere, of course, but I think generally, people obviously, are a yeah, bit, yeah, a little bit more relaxed and and uh, not quite as nervous, and they feel more confident. Like, you know, hey, I've got this. I can survive out here. I don't need mm -hmm. an infrastructure to take care of me. Uh, and so the people that are out in the country usually aren't as stressed out. Mm -hmm. um, and so that leads for more peaceful interactions for the most part. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, that, that's been fun. And well, on the tech side, um, there's this like pull, right? There's this uh, almost anti-technology type of thing where you're doing things that are really old school and things that don't necessarily have to do with technology at all. Mm-hmm. And those are really worthwhile things. You know, I'm going to be growing a garden and yeah, yeah. Uh, splitting wood and making sure that I have enough firewood on hand for the next year and stuff like that, uh, which is not very you know, related to technology. But of course, there are things that you could make it be related to technology if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. We talk about Raspberry Pis and Arduinos and sensors and that sort of thing. But you certainly could do a lot if you wanted to with, um, you know, um, especially with growing things. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's the, you could automate some things or you could do things to do sensors or you could do, especially, you know, you could automate uh, watering yeah, and yeah. Uh, things with livestock and chickens. So I will probably be getting into that time type of thing, but I'm not now, but mm-hmm. I can certainly be exploring a lot more of that kind of rural tech life in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know where you would even go with that, but I, I can, I can think of like, Really, I can only like scratch the surface. So things like, say, automating your sprinklers and things like that, keeping a track of like your water usage, especially if you have rainwater, for example. Um, but I'm sure there's so much further you can go with that that I just can't even think of because I'm not actually living that life right now. Yeah, there's so much. That, uh, there's opportunities where a lot of it is the well, what happens when the electricity goes off? Well, mm-hmm. in the city you have some problems because everything's, you know, built into that. Well, out here, I I have a few more options already, but if I wanted to explore that more, I can. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's good things about preparedness that certainly technology could help with. Mm -hmm. You know, you could use use it for planning. You could use sensors to figure out, you know, hey, am I getting low on this particular thing? Um, Have you used too much? There's a lot of automation that could be done with actually energy generation, like solar, um, or burning wood for heat, energy, et cetera. And a lot of those to do it well, uh, some things with tech and automation could help you do it so that it's actually worth doing where you get a good enough efficiency out of it. Where if you're trying to do it all by hand, it's just sometimes just takes too much time and you've got mm-hmm. other work to do. Where if you can use a little bit of technology to help that along, well, then it's worth doing because you don't always have to babysit it yourself. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm running a wood stove here, firewood isn't exactly very important in Australia, so at least I could save time on that. <laughs> Gets to, like, maybe 10 degrees in the winter, I think I'll be fine without firewood. Yeah, no, you don't have... You, I saw that you just recently did a video about how hot it was there. Yeah. And here, oh, man, it was really bitterly cold for about a week and a half here, and it's just started to warm up, and that's barely above freezing is oh, warm God. up. Like we've been so happy that we've got sunshine and it's barely above freezing. It's wonderful now. So very, very different climates. I've got a uh, Indian subscriber who always just likes to tell me how hot it is in India. Apparently it got to like 45 degrees Celsius over summer, which I'll, I'll for the people who are too lazy to convert that themselves, I'll put that into freedom units. 45C <laughs> to F. That is 113 Fahrenheit. That's... Yeah. No. I'm good. Yeah, that's... Crazy hot. I mean, I can remember a few times. So I live in a climate where it gets really cold and also really hot. Oh, lovely. But usually not for very long at either extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so certainly here it's been, you know, 102 degrees, 103 degrees, but that's very rare 
Um, and I think I remember that when I was a teenager. I can't remember anything recently of it getting that hot here. Um, Fahrenheit, uh, you yeah, know. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. We... I don't think it's going to be Celsius. No, you'd be uh, you'd be long gone with that. <laughs> but yeah, so there's there's this interesting thing of how much do I do with tech stuff in rural life? I mean, how much do I just need to, you know, use my muscles and make stuff happen? Sure. Uh, yeah. Use an old-fashioned axe to split the wood, you know, plant the garden the old-fashioned way, you know. Um, and I think there's probably going to be a mixture of both. You know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just make sure I get the basics taken care of. But if I can have fun using some tech stuff along the way, I probably will. Mm -hmm. So um, before we did the podcast, you were saying that uh, you were doing some upgrades to your workshop. So what, are you, what were you actually uh, doing to it? Um, the, the, the big difference, um, is I actually have my own space. So, uh, when we moved from the city to out here, um, uh, I now have a, have a separate building. It's not in the house. It's in a separate garage and it's a really okay. large space. Um, you probably can't see it from the background here, but I actually have a pretty large space. And then I have a storage area above that. And so a lot of it is getting organized because right. I've got lots of stuff. And so getting it organized and some of the upgrades, so, you know, the workstation that I'm using now, um, there's certain upgrades that I want to do and get things in place. I want to get my, um, kind of my scheduling and my to-do lists. Um, and I've actually been using Vim uh, mm. to do that. I was Before that, I was just using just a, just a plain old GUI text editor. And I keep all my to-dos just in a line, and then I move them to completed. Well, now I've used more of the, uh, learned more of the Vim commands, mm. and I'm starting to use a Vim-based editor to do that. Uh -huh. uh, it's actually an editor called Mo that is written in the NIM programming language that I had an interest in. It has some cool feature complete stuff and tabs, and it works slightly different than the Vim. It might be closer to NeoVim, which I haven't explored in depth. Mm. So, But that's not quite where I want it to be, and I need to organize more of my stuff. And so it's this, this clash of how much time do I spend organizing and how much time do I spend on the pile of work that's waiting to yep. get done? And so sometimes it's like just like do a sprint of, okay, I'm going to work on this project and knock it down and, and get it done. So that way it'll make my work better and easier to do. Mm. So most of it's organization um, and some of it's infrastructure. Like I need to set up a backup server. So yep. I use backup C. And I've got an old one that's working, but I want to split that on a different service and I want to use Alpine to do it. I just haven't done it yet. So I'm going to set up my backup PC server. Um, I want to move um, my CloneZilla infrastructure to its own machine and then set it up with NFS because that way it might transfer faster than using SSH because I don't have the processor overhead to do the encryption and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's on my to-do list to do is uh, get these separate machines set up where it's like this machine does this and this machine does that. And most people are like, oh, why don't you do virtualization or Docker and that sort of thing. And I've got that right now on one Dow Power Edge server. Mm. But the problem is, is I don't have spare parts for that, right? Mm -hmm. So when you use this higher end server hardware and that sort of thing, yeah, it's great and it works well. And you can do this virtualization and Docker and all of that kind of stuff. But from a resiliency standpoint, and I don't have a lack of computers. I probably have well over a hundred computers, right? Mm. You know, desktop computers, older ones. So I would rather set up separate services where each thing does the thing that I want. Mm. And then if for some reason that dies or has a problem or an issue, well, then it only affects that one service. And I probably have spare parts for it. Where mm. the Dell PowerEdge, 
I don't have spare parts for that. Yeah, I think that, that that's probably part of the reason why companies like Google like to run a lot of just generic PCs to do a lot of their server stuff. Because it's if one dies, well, whatever, it I can fix right. it or chuck it, get another one. Exactly. And so I've kind of embraced that mentality and then moving towards that, but not fully implemented. So mm -hmm. that's one of the big things is is getting my local services, the things that I use on a day-to-day -day basis. I use Nextcloud as well mm -hmm. um, to some degree. I found that I more use it just for the calendar feature. <laughs> so I, I using the whole Nextcloud um, is kind of overkill, and I yeah. could probably move some of that stuff off into separate things as well. Um, and since I've been getting interested in Lisp, the programming language, Emacs comes along with that. Mm -hmm. The Vi versus Emacs. And I've always been sort of like the casual user of Vi or Vim. Um, and Emacs has always been this kind of like scary thing. Like maybe I'll look at that in the future. And I'm not sure if I'm going to fully embrace that or not. But I've certainly done some research into like, well, yeah, I could do my to-do lists and calendaring and all my document stuff and all of that sort of thing in Emacs. But mm. I'm not sure if I'll go down that road or not. But I'll certainly research it more. Yeah, I've considered trying out Emacs uh, as well, but as as with a lot of other things, it's a very big project, and I don't actually have any Lisp experience, so I would have to learn that along the way as well. Um, yeah. But for my calendaring right now, I'm just doing stuff in Thunderbird because I check my emails in Thunderbird, so I might as well do my calendar there as well. That works. I was looking for some different email solutions as well, just kind of a, kind of as a reaction to some of the stuff recently with Mozilla. And uh, Thunderbird is such a great program, though, and I've been using it for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that resistance to change uh, that's there, and it, it does work well. There's some things that I want to um, uh, experiment with, but they would also require a separate server for me to do. Right. Uh, so there's one called Sift. I think it's spelled C-Y-P-H-T or something like that, um, Sift. Um, and that looks really nice, and it has a web interface. And that would do um, RSS feeds, and then it would integrate um, uh, all the email stuff into a web-based interface that I would host myself. Um, it's kind of like an IMAP client. I um, and I really like that idea. Uh, but again, taking the time to set up that server. I probably mm. will in the future. I think that's a really good one. So that's another one on my kind of uh, setting up my workspace um, list is, is um, that a replacement for Thunderbird, but right now I'm using Thunderbird too. And, but I use a, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose I could just use the calendaring and Thunderbird. Yeah. But... Do you need do a you cross sync multiple? Sorry. Do you sync it between more than one computer or just I use don't, it on one? No, I just use it on one. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was going to say that, that, can you do that? I, I don't know if. I, I think you can. I think it's essentially just, you know, there's ways that you can do it either the manual way of just, you know, finding where it writes that data. Well, and yeah, of course. Computers. And I think it's just a basic iCal format, so you could easily okay. do that. Um, and I think there's a plugin that you can get for Thunderbird that does it too. Probably. There's a plugin for everything in Thunderbird. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've just been using Nextcloud because we've been using that for a while for my family stuff. And mm -hmm. I started using Calendar recently. And I'm like, this actually works pretty well. I'll keep on using it, but I'll be looking for other options too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Hmm. So did yeah, you uh, ever get the Ryzen uh, CPU 
thing fixed um or uh no no i didn't um okay. my problem was that i've got uh there was a there was also a bent pin i didn't realize um and it might have bent a little too much so that that was also a problem um but there was also a little uh, there was some um they all basically got onto the underside of the cpu so it was yeah, yeah. Th that was that was a really dumb experience i i don't know what i was doing there killed a 900 dollars oh. cpu <laughs> Yeah, and from a hardware, do you still have it or no? I do, yeah. Okay, maybe one of your Australian viewers would want to buy it off you on the the, the chance that they could revive it. I've considered um, selling it, but also I just want to, uh, maybe I'll keep it as a memento and like stick it on my wall or something. Yes. Like yes, this is like, how you don't, I, I remember don't do this that. to a $900 CPU. Yeah, well, my, my channel uh, um, logo is mm. is a CPU with a Sharpie written on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I keep that one as kind of like a memento, right? So yours would just be a more expensive one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that... Oh, Lord. I, I Tip anyone building a computer. Um, know what you're doing. I, I, I know how to build a computer. I've done it before. It'd be in a couple of years, though. And yeah... yeah uh, yeah. I just recently got into building more Ryzen stuff. And even though I do this for a living, I still make some mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and so the recent one, I've got this just weird issue where everything works perfectly. Ryzen based board. I've done this build with this motherboard two other times before. I like it. It works. Weird issue where Windows just hangs and won't shut down fast. Mm -hmm. Not seem to be a major problem, right? It's just like when you click the shortcut key to shut down Windows, you know, Windows X U U, yeah. or you click on the start and press shutdown, it just sits there and does nothing for quite mm -hmm. a while. And then eventually will shut down, but takes minutes to do so. I have no idea why. So I've done a fresh install of Windows. I think it's something to do with the Ryzen board or CPU. I've ordered, um, essentially, I'm ordering replacement parts to figure it out and just swap things out piece by piece. Mm -hmm. So having issues with new hardware, I, I think that's something that a lot of people have. The frustrating thing about new hardware is it's expensive when you make a mistake, where with the Retro Core 2 Duo hardware that I like and like having fun with, it's like, oh, no problem. I've got plenty of those to spare. Mm -hmm. I can get them easier, cheap. You know, yeah, the, the Ryzen stuff is still not cheap. Um, also, don't make the mistake I did, which is buy an Intel board when you bought a, a Ryzen CPU. Because I did that. I bought a board at like 1am. Don't don't buy PC hardware at 1am because you won't look at the product number properly. Yeah, so you bought... Essentially, you were looking at board at the AMD version, but then accidentally switched to the... Yeah, they the were equivalent. identical boards, except they had a... like The, the pin um name was slightly different it was like the lga and then whatever that md one is called and i accidentally bought the lga version because i'm an idiot um yeah. oh, okay well that one you'd be able to sell or do you still have that one uh no that one i sold okay good, good. yeah it was yeah. it was literally new in box um excellent. yeah excellent so yeah no i mean i enjoy building hardware too but occasionally i would i would say that the newer stuff is actually frustrating and not as fun to work on Mm -hmm. And from uh, like just having fun with computers, which is essentially what we do, really, you know, like, hey, sure, let's yeah. explore the thing with Linux or let's uh, you know find this new package or what can we do with this tiling window manager? Or what's this new software thing on Linux that we haven't done before? That having fun with computers for me is a lot less stressful and much more fun on older hardware. Mm -hmm. 
because mm. I don't have to worry about bending the pins. Like I pulled that Ryzen CPU out. So I actually have it on the back counter right behind me. Um, mm. Yes, a guy was building his PC locally and mm. he needed an older Ryzen CPU to flash the BIOS so that his newer Ryzen uh. CPU would work. And I pulled an older Ryzen CPU out of one of the computers that I got in recycling and it was compatible with his board. And so I just loaned it to him and said, oh yeah, hey, see if it works, do the firmware upgrade. Well, I saved him $150 because if he would have had to buy a CPU yeah. to do that himself, it'd be you know $150. I mean, that's a lot of money for that mistake of not knowing that you needed to do a firmware update on your motherboard to even get your CPU that you bought to work. Yeah, I I don't really like the... That's one thing I don't really like about the way that CPU um, and motherboard revisions are being done right now, where you have... I think the AMD CPUs work across like three or so generations right now, but yeah. the oldest generation is just like they might maybe possibly work, possibly, but depends on the board, depends if they decide to support it. It might need a firmware upgrade. You don't really know though. Unless yeah. you've done specific research on that exact model number and your exact CPU, it's not always clear whether it's going to work unless you're buying the same generation motherboard as the CPU. Right, which can be frustrating. Um, and so, yeah, just, I mean, I, I like, I mean, as far as new hardware, I would go Ryzen all the way. That's my mm. recommendation. I think if you're buying yeah. anything, even even used hardware within the last couple of years, go with Ryzen. I've, I've had a great experience with it for the most part. Um, and it seems to be a lot more pleasant to work with. And the performance for doing useful things, uh, Ryzen seems to be great for that. Um, uh, especially the video stuff um, and multitasking and having lots of things running at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go go with Ryzen. But if you're interested in retro stuff, um, kind of the Intel stuff is more fun for me to work with. So it's mm. kind of that weird thing where like, hey, if you're using older computers, Intel's the way to go. If you're getting something newer, AMD is the way to go. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely love to just have a secondary system, then use my main system just to capture it. But yeah. I don't exactly have uh, have room here because my, my bed is like literally touching the back of my chair. So, Oh, I just got a... Um, you had mentioned capture cards. Mm. Uh, it was literally on the box here. And I'll pull it out. Because it's just something I got cheap. Oh, it probably won't show up in the video very well now. But it's oh, just yeah. something. Yeah, it's this HDMI thing like this. Oh, it's another generic HDMI thing. I love it. Yeah. And so I, I think it works like a webcam. So Linux doesn't actually see it as like an import card. It like sees it as a webcam. Yeah. And then, but what I'm hoping what to called? do. Um, like, see if it even has a brand name. It, just whatever it says in the box, I'll probably be able to find it. Well, the one that I liked, the reason I liked this one is it had the HDMI in and out. Uh, uh -huh. There we go. This, yeah, that might work. HDMI in and out. So, and then it plugs in with USB. Um, and so I haven't tried it yet, but I think what I'll be able to do is even on quite old computers, I'll be able oh, to, okay. you know, have like digital output or add a video card. And then yeah. I'll be able to, you know, work on, you know, computers up to 15 years old and do hardware stuff and then mm. pull that in and record that on my other workstation. Um, and I think for older hardware, that really makes a lot of sense 
because you don't want the overhead of recording the screen and doing all the video stuff on that older hardware. You know, on some of the stuff it could do it, but yeah, it'd be nice to see the native performance and do the things that I'm wanting to do without having the video overhead. Yeah, I would I would like to do I actually might have to get one of these because my capture card is do I have a second one sitting around here? I think I do. I'm gonna find it. Um, I can't unplug my main one because my camera's plugged into it. Right. Uh, let's see. And I can bring my mic with me. Um, do I have one sitting around here? I should. Is it inside of my drawer? Because I am just running. Air cables stuck around me. I'm just running one of these. Yeah. 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 Focus on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, not on my fingers. Right, right, right. I can sort of see the text. It's essentially just a USB oh uh, HDMI capture, but it's only got one input, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yep. this camera is just not having, it's just not going well for me today. What is. Uh, yeah. Why is it focusing on my fingertips? There we go. You can kind of read it. Whatever. I'm not. I'm done with that. So the thing about this is, then I can loop back, and it has no name. There's like, there's no. No, I, I did find it. Um, on on eBay, it is HDMI 4K 1080p video capture card screen record USB 3.0 video audio loop out. Yep. <laughs> Search for yep. that, and you'll find it. And this one has the two HDMI things, so that way I can yeah. have my regular retro screen and be imported into the thing. So, yeah, when I get time, I look forward to doing some stuff with actually on the hardware instead of yeah. a virtual machine. Yeah, right now I've actually I haven't got one of those, but the way I'm capturing my PS4 is actually doing something similar. So I've got a, a HDMI splitter I got from eBay. Basically, it's eight, one HDMI in, two HDMI out. Basically perfect. The only problem with it is it's mono audio, um, which is a bit of a problem because then you don't have any positional sound. But it it's fine for doing stream captures. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I suppose on a game, it yeah, would, it would not be the full experience. Yeah, yeah. With single channel sound, got it. Um, for me, that wouldn't matter, and I haven't even looked. And this thing says 4K on it, but like we had talked about before, I don't care about the 4K. I'm just going to do 1080p anyway. I wonder if it works, that 4K, though. Yeah. That's the question. I have no idea. Um, and like I said, I think it just emulates a webcam in Linux, mm -hmm. and that's how it works in Linux. Generally, and so that's kind of yeah, concept. Yeah. So 4K webcam. Generally, what those things do is they will be... Um basically treated like a regular um uvc camera so anything like any usb capture camera basically that's the way my uh actual camera is being treated right now so when this thing plugs in basically it show now it works yeah there you go <laughs> basically what happens is it just shows up as i think like hdmi capture or something i just select that and then it just works it just thinks it's a, a webcam yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that it'll be pretty painless because um, I'm looking forward to doing more stuff on actual hardware. And like you said, you, I think we talked about this because we was like, it'd be nice to have a separate PC to do this yeah. and that and that sort of thing. And yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, 
and for your setup, I'm not sure, you know, it depends on what projects you do, of course, but mm -hmm. you know, that, that certainly could be, you know, you could look at older hardware that's free or almost free, um, depending on what projects you're doing. Well, I would love to do some, um, like some maybe OpenBSD stuff or maybe like Arctic, anything like that, and actually try it on hardware rather than doing it in a VM. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be interested in that. Um, and I plan to eventually get around to OpenBSD. So if you get to it before me, then I can watch your videos about it. Mm. <laughs> I, yeah, I, maybe one day at some point. <laughs> no, no guarantees. I've said I'm going to do OpenBSD stuff for a while. Same with things like NixOS and just haven't got around to it. Yeah, it's, it's the same with me. I mean, a year ago, I said I was going to do a series on Alpine Linux, which I'm still going to do, but mm -hmm. I haven't done very much on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the eternal problem. You have so many things you want to do, and you cannot justify spending time on things that when, when, you, actually, when you have other things you know you should be doing. It's like, oh, I should, maybe I should be working on my business, but I've got these Linux things I want to try out as well. Yeah. Now you do programming stuff as well, right? You do. No, um, I, okay. I, I, I do program, not as a job though. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm a wannabe programmer. So mm. I, I studied four years at, at university to not program. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I did four years of English literature. Um, ah. So, yes, we both uh, have useful degrees. Uh, in, 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 my, in my defense, I will say that I use the language analysis and communication skills every day. Mm -hmm. Have I gotten that without spending that much money at private university? Probably, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, okay, yeah, to be fair, I may not be a developer right now, but I do use my, uh, my skills to think like a developer. Did I need to right. pay $30,000 to do that? Not really, no. Right. Yeah, agreed. So that's the conversation we're having about our kids is like, hey, do we want to do the college prep? And so we talk about that a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, for, for me, I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial. And I'm like, I'll just work with them to set up a business and then they'll be good to go. You like, can, mm -hmm. They can four years of college and be right into a field. So, I mean, we'll keep on exploring that. But that's one of the cool things about technology and especially programming, mm -hmm. since you can do it remotely now. Um, uh, is that, you know, it does open up a lot of opportunities. I think the tough thing is finding a, a niche or a specialty that would allow you to be a consultant or a business owner. Because, mm. um, yeah, I'm not huge in favor of working like the regular kind of programming job, though. You don't want to be a number. Do. <laughs> you don't just want to be a number on a on a payroll. No, well, in, in part of it is like some of the culture that goes yeah. along with the, the deadlines. You know, you have all these strict deadlines and you're always stressed to work on this thing. But sometimes for it's a project that you know will actually never see the light of day of getting mm -hmm. published or that isn't really important at all. Yeah. Um, so there's that kind of, you've got to work really hard on it but is it really the thing that you should be working hard on? Well, because mm. it's your job, yes. But that's kind of the frustration that I see a lot of other programmers dealing with mm. is that, that kind of frustration. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm happy fixing computers and messing around with my retro stuff. So I think I'll keep on doing that and just explore programming as 
something for fun that eventually I might make money on with no specific plans on how to do that for right now. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, well, I, I do have that degree that I can go and actually do development work if I want to. I've done a dev job in the past. Um, like I think I did it for like six or so months or so. And okay. yeah, I I enjoyed it. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, but I was also basically the only dev on the team, so I sort of had a lot of creative control. I don't know how it would be actually doing development at a regular company. And right now I'm sort of focusing on doing this this YouTube stuff and this Odyssey stuff, and I'm enjoying it. I'm not making a I'm not making tons of money from it, but I'm making enough and that's that's fine with me. Yeah, no, I think it's something to explore and, and it's it's one of those things to really I think when you get a sense of accomplishment, essentially when you publish a video, you got something done. Mm-hmm. And it's concrete. It's like you you've done that, you've published it. And then you've also it's cumulative. So you've built up over time. And mm-hmm. each of those steps along the way matters and contributes to the larger thing of what you're trying to do. Yeah. And I see that as very rewarding and fulfilling. Um, so yeah, keep on doing it, man. Thank you. Um, my, my, I have kind of a different idea for monetization that I Mm. eventually want to do is essentially, I like selling things. I Mm. I enjoy the sales process of helping somebody find what works for them or what they might want to use. And so I enjoy that sales discovery process with people. Mm -hmm. Um, so Instead of doing, you know, ads, because um, right now I'm just publishing to Odyssey Library yeah. um, and not publishing to YouTube. So instead of doing ad revenue um, or or Patreon or some of those other things, all legitimate, fine things, I think what I want to do is build up an audience doing the things that I'm interested in doing and then selling physical things mm-hmm. that go along with that. and that'll probably be retro computers, like CPUs, RAM, motherboards, retro stuff. Uh, And then eventually just selling that is like, hey, if you like what I do, buy some of what I've got. And um, I I have a guess that that will work. It's just, it's, you've got to do it for so long and experiment to see if it actually will. Yeah, I would love to do something physical as well. Right now, I've had some people be like, hey, Sell some shirts, sell this, sell that. I was like, will anyone buy them though? That's that's the the big question. Like, I can do all this setup, but will anyone actually buy them? And I don't know. Um, I think I think for bigger brands like uh, so a YouTube channel like Linus Tech Tips. Yeah. Uh, I I laugh every time he does his shameless promotions mm-hmm. for like his water bottles and T-shirts and stuff like that. And it works. I mean, like he does. Obviously, he does sell them. Otherwise, he wouldn't do that. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I, I can agree with you. I think, would anybody buy my T-shirt? Yeah. Maybe a couple people. But yeah, you're right. Is it worth the setup? I mean, maybe if you have a T-shirt that you plan on selling for the next 10 years mm-hmm. that has some lasting value, then cool, maybe. But if it's something that's more on trend, I could see spending a lot of time doing that setup and then selling five shirts and the rest not, yeah, not working. I feel like someone at the size of like DistroTube could probably do it, but as I am right now, I I don't really think that makes any sense to go and do. Maybe in a year or two, maybe it will, but 
right now, I, I think it's something... Maybe I can start looking at designs, but actually setting something up at this point, I think, is probably going to be a waste of effort at this point. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I'd wait on that. Um, and, and I think the Patreon or subscriber model mm -hmm. works really well. Because essentially, if people like what you do, and chipping in a small amount um, every month, um, or tipping, or that sort of... I like the tips model as well, but the subscription mm. model works well. The tips model works well because if maybe somebody's not a regular follower, but they just really got a lot out of one of your videos, and they say, mm. that was really helpful. Thank you, man. Here's 10 bucks. Well, you know, if that happens every once in a while, that's just like this extra bonus that's yeah. really nice. Um, and then the subscription model ends up being like the staying power where you can kind of say, well, I know I have this many subscribers and this many people who are in that pay tier of subscribers and that will work too. Cause mm -hmm. I know that I can see how I can build up my business to do that. Um, so I see both of those as, as very valid ways to do it. Um, but I don't think I don't have to do that cause I've got plenty of other work that yeah, I'm doing yeah. that. Pays so I think I'll just not do those and explore something different as a way to monetize. That's entirely fair. Um, but with the, the tip model, I I definitely like the way that Odyssey's doing it compared to YouTube, where YouTube will take like a 50% cut in some cases, which is just like... Wow, you, I didn't know. Yeah, if you, get, if you have... There's a thing called um, uh, Cheer on YouTube. Basically, it's like a you can tip a video. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so, I think it's about 50% cut they take. Which yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I could see them doing that. I didn't know it was that bad. 50% basically for a bank transfer, which is, that's not how that fee structure should be. Right. And of course, that's one of the advantages of crypto, where mm. you can do these smaller microtransactions. Um, I read a book by Scott McCloud. It was in the kind of the Understanding Comics series um, years ago. Now, if you're a comics guy, I know you I like some of the... Uh, Manga, Japanese art type of stuff. Uh, no, I've, never um, under read a, I've never read a comic book, though. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I, I used to be into comics a little bit when I was younger. But one of the books that I loved was Scott McCloud's um, Understanding Comics. Mm -hmm. And then he had some follow-up ones uh, where he talked about kind of like the payment structure for artists. And mm -hmm. this was, I think, in the 90s, um, maybe 2000 era. But in that, it was 20-some years ago. And he mm. talks about micropayments on the internet. And this was, you know, very much pre-crypto. Mm. Um, but essentially now with library, we have that. I mean, it's already something that we're, we're doing and using. So it's kind of neat to see that idea uh, mm. presented in that book. And we're, we're living in that reality now. Yeah. Have you seen how much the platform's been growing recently? Because I think, yeah, it was Tim Pool just recently got to 100K subs just the other day. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. So um, he's the other uh, first channel to actually, the first actual channel. So obviously, like the library channel and library cast had more than 100K, but Tim is the first one to, like, the first actual creator to hit 100K subs, which is absolutely massive. My views have been going up. And, you know, I don't publish very often, but mm. I see in its views from non logged in people. So mm. you don't get the auto tip thing. Um, but my views on the videos that I've done recently have gone way up higher than I thought they would be. Mm -hmm. um, 
still tiny, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree. And so I think that a lot of people are maybe browsing to the website and seeing, hey, what's here? Mm -hmm. And so I think there must be a whole lot more people doing that, just kind of like opening up the web browser, typing in odyssey.com or library.tv, and then exploring it without necessarily being logged in. Well, I, I think there's definitely something to be said about that because I, uh, kind of a, a little flex, I have the most popular video uh, on on Odyssey released on YouTube. Um, if you search for Odyssey, I believe my video is... Okay, it's second right now, but it has the most views. Um, and that video has been getting more and more views every single day, like the amount of views as well. And it's just going up and up and up. And yeah, I, I think there's definitely a, a case for that. A, a lot of people are definitely um, trying out something new because YouTube has just been doing a lot of things that have like, a lot of users just don't like. Well, I appreciate you doing that video because essentially that means you're bringing more people in to mm. that audience, Chip, and then all of us who are publishing there uh, get seen more. I think one of the concerns I see with the people who are library-only publishers is you only get people who are interested in library. I get the idea of like publishing on library, having good exclusive content there, but I think it makes more sense to exist on both platforms and then release exclusives there to bring people over for that content. I get if you're like starting out, that's different. You don't really have a established uh, viewer base on another platform, but if you do... I think it makes more sense to try to bring that user base over to somewhere new. I agree. And I think I watched your video where you talked about uh, where you publish on multiple platforms and why. And I totally agree with that. And I eventually want to start publishing on more platforms, uh, but probably not live, uh, probably not YouTube. I was publishing yeah. on YouTube and I was like, uh, I just don't want to bother with it. And uh, some of the political stuff or the yeah, sensory yeah. thing, I was like, I'm small enough where I don't have much of an audience either way. Though if you kind of another strange thing, if you search for Alpine Linux, mm -hmm. um, one of my videos comes up like first or second uh, on YouTube. So I'm, I have like thousands and thousands of views on that. Okay. Um, but uh, um, it's, I, I haven't checked it recently. So it's probably um, the same. I'm going to see. If, yep. Yeah. It's full yeah. video. <laughs> Yeah, so if you search for Alpine Linux, I'm one of the top videos. And I think for a while, it was like the first video if you search for Alpine Linux. And so I got thousands and thousands of views on that. And so, and then since I hit the links to the library and that sort of thing, that might have made a difference. Mm. So, I mean, I'd consider publishing on YouTube again, especially if I had like maybe had already had done a series and then just like maybe republish it to YouTube after I published it to library. Yeah. And I also want to publish on more than one platform but I haven't decided what other platform besides mm -hmm. library that would be. Yeah, yeah. Right now, I'm also on... Um, uh, what the, the developers of Utreon contacted me not too long ago. Uh, they're oh. a, a very small platform. They I think I started last year, actually. Uh, their entire thing is based around the subscription model, basically just okay. giving the creator a... like. There is You can still watch the content for free, but... Their subscription model is like you actually like the creator gets a decent cut of it. It's not like we take thirty percent. I think they take basically platform fees, so enough to just keep the platform operating. Yeah, that's a neat model. I'd be interested in yeah learning more about that. So that's cool. And, and I'm obviously on uh, Bitshoot as well, but 
Big right. Shoot's still stuck with like 480p video, and in the year, tw- like, like wh- wh- why you why 480p video? Like, really? <laughs> in search doesn't work very well. On no, Big it does. It's it's basically a simple regex search. And it's hard to find stuff and. It's not yeah. a great video platform. It really needs a lot of work. Plus, it looks like um, whoever did the CSS has just never done CSS for a website before. I think BitChute works if you want to see what people are talking about today. Yes. Right? Yes. If you're, if you're a news junkie and you like, what did so-and-so say about politics or news or that sort of thing today? Yes. Then you can go to BitChute and watch it. And it'll work fine for you that way. But if you want to search for a particular topic or an older video, it's really hard to do on BitChute. Mm. Yeah, that, that's very true. Odyssey's gotten better at it. It's still pretty broken in some cases. Like when I try to search for your channel, unless I specifically write out the name exactly the way it's written, it doesn't come up. That's true. That's true. Um, but searching for topics is pretty decent. But yeah, if you yeah. want to find somebody in particular, yeah, it doesn't work for general search very well. I think, I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that you have a dot in your name. Yeah. Because mine comes up just fine, and most others come up fine, but yours is one of the few that I've seen as a bit of a problem. And I don't know if I can change that after the fact. I suppose I could look into that, but... Mm-hmm. Eh. I um, Honestly, they it, it's just a problem that Odyssey needs to address at some point, but... They are working on some pretty cool stuff recently, like live streaming, which is being tested. And okay. uh, yeah, they did a, a test not too long ago and actually had that working, which is awesome. It's still very much in like a closed beta, but at some point they'll be live streaming publicly on Odyssey. Um, and also uh, video transcoding. So having videos that can play back at multiple resolutions. Right which is really yeah, big on, as well. On one of my, so right now they have the option to, what is it, like kind of optimize where you have FMMPEG installed yeah, yeah. on your machine and then it does that. Well, on the most recent video that I tried it with, it like garbled the audio. Uh, it, it was like off sync. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, the audio didn't match up for the video, but it was really weird. It only happened for like maybe the first 10, 15 seconds and then it, that somehow syncs back up again mm-hmm. for the rest of the video. So I, I tried re-uploading the video. I'm not sure if that fixed the issue or not, but then I left it unchecked, like don't optimize. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I optimize so stuff before I upload. upload when I, like for my podcast, I manually upload it to um, Odyssey. Uh, with that, I just chuck it in Handbrake and I've got a, a setup for Handbrake that just does it exactly the way I want it. That's cool. Yeah, another great Linux application. In one second, my dog's barking. She's barking at nothing. Because that's what dogs do. My family wants to get a dog. I'm resisting. Even though I like animals and dogs like me. uh, And we have no excuse now because I live out in the country. um, I'm resisting for a while longer. Mm -hmm. I won't be able to hold out forever because there's no good reason not to have a dog. And my family would like one. So we'll get one. Eventually. (laughs) One day, yes. When you can eventually, when you eventually give up hope of not having a dog. So yeah, they're, they're a lot of work, but my kids are old enough, and my wife has promised that she'll take care of it, and I won't have yeah. to do hardly anything. We'll see how that goes. Mm. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, 
Well, we are just past two hours and 15 minutes now. I think this is as good a time as any to, to wrap up the podcast. So cool. towards the end, usually what I do is uh, give some random channel a shout out. Is there anyone out there that you've been watching or you think deserves a bit of attention? Oh. And I always put people on the spot. Yeah, you put me on the spot. There, there are some great things that I've been watching. Um, I, I guess things that lots of people other know about that I just kind of found um, is that the Alpha Nerd is on uh, Library, and he publishes as something different on YouTube. I forget who that is. I've been watching a few of his videos and liking uh, how the do you comments spell that? here. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's somebody who you 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 know. You think you've mentioned him as well. Uh, um, maybe uh, what what was the channel? Sorry. Uh, Alpha Nerd. Uh, oh, Isn't Alpha Nerd. It? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, um, the name. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, it's Mental Outlaw. Yeah, that's that's who it is. And I I haven't watched his. Like, I think you you followed him for quite a while. And I just I just found it on um, on on library because there was a few of the video topics that I was interested in, and so I clicked subscribe. And I've watched a few of those, but I don't know that I don't know that channel very well. But I think he's mm -hmm. already super popular. Um, oh yeah, no, he's he's got a pretty big channel over on um, over on YouTube. I think it's like yeah. it's not nowhere near as big as like DT, but still one of the bigger Linux channels. Yeah. And there are definitely some other smaller things, but it's more of kind of a topic interest mm. that I've seen. Um, I would say the shout out um, is probably DT's Mastodon instance. Um, that's, fair. That's, that's been a lot of fun. So it's not a video channel, um, but you know, if, if you haven't got on Mastodon before, um, I would recommend signing up either at the Linux Rocks one where Brody is on um, or the DT um, one, it's called distrotoot.com. And that has been a lot of fun. Um, so not video content, but there's some cool people there who are doing mm -hmm. interesting things. And, uh, um, if you also have questions, I've seen that where, Hey, I'm wondering about this, or I can't get this to work, or I'm curious about this. I see people responding and giving helpful information and that's really useful. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my shout out would be to, um, if you're not on Mastodon or the Fediverse already, um, to join uh, either DT's instance or the one that you're on. Yep. Yeah, I can agree. That those are both really good instances. The only, the only problem with uh, DT's is a couple of the bigger instances have decided that they don't like DT yeah. and have blocked him. Right. So I don't know what I'm missing. So not not much. Boring people <laughs> who don't like fun. Yeah. Um, so be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a problem you get with some instances, but it's not a major deal. Um, as for me, I'm going to say if you like uh, doing video editing, doing stuff with like FOSS tools or working with things like Blender and stuff, there is a channel out there called uh, Tux Designer. They're just mm -hmm. on YouTube right now. Um but they've done tutorials for things like Blender, for Shotcut, for Olive, for Caden Live, for a bunch of other free and open source video editors as well. So if you want to know how to do like any sort of video editing with tools like that, this is a really good channel that's worth checking out. They only have uh, 26,000 subs, so not a massive channel, 
And I, I've learned a lot of stuff from these guys as well. Also, I've done stuff on GIMP as well, apparently. Um, yeah, I've learned a lot of stuff uh, from these guys, and I recommend, absolutely recommend checking them out. Excellent. And will there be a link link in the description or something like that for the... If Maybe. I remember to put them there. I, I usually I, forget to put those links. I'll put your links there. Your links will definitely be there. These ones, if I remember. Well, the, the you asked for a shout out about a channel. And when you said that, now I do think of a channel. Ah. Um, uh, TJ Free. So the letter T, the yep. letter J, and Free. And he, he does a lot of just really simple, fun stuff. Like one of his showing what you can do with mm -hmm. open source and free software. Yeah. And like one of his recent videos, he doesn't even commentate it at all. He's just like, uh, does some stuff in some graphics programs. It just shows you the screencast of it with some music. Mm. And I actually think it's really helpful because it just gives this very short introduction to people of like, oh, you can do that. I didn't know you could do that. I yeah. want to do that. So I think TJ Free is a great channel. Um, mm. And he does a lot of stuff with free software. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't actually heard of this channel, but the name did ring a bell. So, yeah, maybe I've seen something from him. I'm not too sure. Uh, anyway, um, where can people find you? Um, on library, um, retroedge.tech. But as we discussed, that's kind of hard to find. Uh, my website is retroedge.tech. And um, I, I have RSS there and some blog posts that are older but plan on posting more of my links to videos and uh, more updated topics there as well. So retroedge.tech website. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, there'll be links to all of those in the description as well. If people uh, forgot how to type, I guess. Uh, so uh, before we go, actually, do you have anything, anything else you want to say before I do my bit of outro? Um. It's been fun. Uh, this is the first kind of podcast uh, like this that I've mm. been a guest on. I think I did some podcast stuff years ago, but uh, that was audio only. So uh, yeah. it's, been, it's been pretty cool hanging out with you and talking about tech stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I had a lot of fun as well. And you're more than welcome to come back on if you ever want to. Yeah, later on. Well, definitely. Let's do that. Uh, we, maybe on specific projects or something, if you're curious about some of the stuff um, that I end up... Uh, doing uh that, that'd be great i'd enjoy that yeah awesome uh okay before we go then i'd like to thank my supporters so a special thank you to chris Joachim, donald michael andrew nathan david monster will brennan chico bento jamie joseph mitchell peter d stephen tony Shushar, and all of my two dollar supporters if you are listening to the audio version the video version is available on odyssey library and uh youtube as well and if you're watching the video version the audio version is available Basically anywhere, if you can type tech over T into a search engine, you will probably find it. Um, yeah. I don't know who's going to be the guest next week. I'll work it out before then, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'll let you do the outro. What do you want to say? It's been great talking tech. We'll see you next time. Cool. See you guys next time.